I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. W-A-P-G, it's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 357. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters Studios. Today's show was recorded on the 9th of January, 2019. today's episode aviation news and our commentary more news your feedback and this week's plain tale the Widowmakers. so get all settled in tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions electronic devices powered on flight 357 is ready for pushback Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where, as I just mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, aviation news that occurred between the last show and this one. And, of course, uh, tackle your feedback as well as uh, this week's installment of The Plane Tales. So, how is everybody doing? Steph? Oh, this is where I go this, like this. And here to help me... With all of that, because I need as much help as I can get, uh, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. I just thought we were switching things up tonight, you know, a little bit different, mix up the format, you know, shake things up a little bit. Yeah. No, no. clearly... I, it's I, all right. I, well, I, we're here to help, Jeff. We are here yeah, to help. Yeah, thank you. I, I really need the help because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. It's like the first time I've ever done a podcast. <sighs> 357 <laughs> shows later. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us today from his mobile recording studio in Boston, Massachusetts, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for a international and international airport based in London, Captain Nick. Hi, Jeff. Lovely to be back on the show. And despite all my efforts, I haven't found a single person in the city who pronounces it Boston. <laughs> yeah. Probably for good reason. And speaking of Boston, we have from a stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, boat skipper, and underwater photographer. And a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Hey, everybody. Great to be back on another fantastic show. So looking forward to a good one. Yeah, we hope. We hope. Fingers always, crossed. Always. <laughs> Everyone's and, good. Oh, wait a minute. We we have some guest host music. I hear it in the background. Oh, singing right next to Captain Nick. In Boston, Massachusetts, this is our main man, Micah, from the Pine Tree State. Right, Micah? 
It's the pine tree state. It's also vacation land. But here I am in Boston. When I heard that Nick was going to be here and he had a two day layover here in Boston, and that doesn't happen very often, and realizing that I haven't seen him since our time in Pittsburgh, I thought it was time to come down and visit. Well, we're glad you did. And uh, vacation land. Really? That's what it says on our license plate. On the license plate. Yep. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's a rare thing to see a main license plate down here, but it does on the very bottom. It, it says vacation land. I always thought that when I write my book, I should call it, I work in vacation land. And then everybody would think you're talking about Orlando, Florida or something like that. The happiest place in the world, or so they say. <laughs> Wally World. Isn't that what the... Oh, never mind. Yeah, Wally World. Okay. Walt Disney, Wally. Oh, no, no, no. What's the... Yeah, that was sh- uh, National Lampoon Vacation. National Lampoon Vacation, yeah. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. And again, welcome to our little aviation show. And uh, Micah, uh, as always, always great to see you. And I'm glad you made the trek down to Boston. How, how far of a drive is that? How long of a drive? About 100 miles. And uh, it was an easy drive. We had a little weather up in Portland, Maine, as we're apt to do. But it became beautiful when we got down here. But what was interesting following the magenta line when the uh, GPS told me that I was here and I had arrived, I was inside a tunnel underground to Prudential center someplace. And it says you've arrived at your destination. (laughs) So I came out not really knowing Boston particularly well, driving around, looking for the hotel, can't find it, make a couple of turns, ask about a dozen people. Do you know where the Marriott is? Nobody in Boston has any idea where it is. It was really interesting, but I finally got here, checked into the hotel. I'm at the front desk. And there's Captain Nick waiting for me. I should have just asked him. Yeah, he would have told you where his hotel is. Captain Nick's always well happy to tell you where to go. Yes, that's <laughs> true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a forte of mine. <laughs> so are New Yorkers, by the way. <laughs> it's um, true. But we can't say exactly how they tell you <laughs> where to go. Different uh, politeness levels, I think, involved. Yes. Actually, that's not true. That's a that's an unfair characterization of the fine folks from New York. And uh, we're going to talk about some of these fine folks from New York shortly because uh, we had a little meetup up there. So, or I did with some of those folks. Uh, let's see. So, Nick, since you're right there next to Micah and, uh, you know, he was just talking. So this might be a good time for you to talk as well. What have you been up to, sir? Uh, well, uh, b- busy old world, isn't it? I had a couple of days free, uh, went back on call. Uh, they called me not to to give me a trip that day but to tell me that i was on uh, the boston the next day which actually was fine i mean i not that i can refuse but i thought oh, that'll be a good trip two nights yeah that'll be fantastic got a little note out uh, in slack so uh, just another good excuse uh, to go uh, and use another um, media outlet uh, so if you're not a slacker then become one because you might miss something uh, and had a, a nice, pleasant flight out here. Um, it was uh, forecast; it wasn't good. We got off on time. It wasn't due to be foggy till after midnight Zulu. Uh, but of course, we're an hour out, uh, an hour before that, and uh, it was already down a half a mile. And here's the question: I'm just going to have to ask opposing bases. So I pull up the ATIS, and it said uh, they're on uh, runway. Uh, I think it's one two left um in boston one five left no it must be two two left two 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 left left. okay so that's a cat one only 
and the minima there uh, is three quarters of a mile visibility uh, to make an approach. And they're giving weather at half a mile, uh, but they're giving ILSs to two two left. So I'm looking at it, going, "Hang on a minute, that's that's illegal. You can't you can't fly an approach with the visibility that the saddle limits. That's the one thing you can't do." So I, I got on to our ops and said, uh, can you just check what runway Boston's using? Surely if they're down a half a mile, they should be using one of the Cat 3 approaches. Uh, so the other end of that runway is a Cat 3 runway. And what's more, that one's into wind, whereas landing on 2-2 two, two left, you've got a 5-knot tailwind. Um, and uh, so I fully expected them to come back, or oh, they made a mistake. And the reply was, uh, the FAA have said, that uh, they're landing on two two left, and if you want to make an approach on the other end, it could cause significant or could cause you significant delays. And I'm going, well, hang on a minute. So I'm st I'm still wondering how <laughs> well, is everybody can, else doing it? Yeah, how they can promulgate an approach for a runway when the visibility is clearly out of limits. Anyway, Did uh, when we got there, they were running uh, ILSs for two two left, um, and they were giving RVRs when I got onto the tower. Uh, and the RVRs were fine for the approach, so yes. we made an approach. But um, uh, we got the lights, uh, the minimum at 216 feet. We got the lights at 230 feet. So uh, literally I was uh, on the edge of pushing the throttles forward when uh, out of the gloom came some to the approach lights. And uh, a little bit later we got the, the full runway. But it really was a scoshy. And I'm still scratching my head to work out why on earth Boston wouldn't have been using the other end of the runway where we could have done an auto land and where we wouldn't have to land with a five-dot tailwind. So eh, there you go. Well, you know, those guys aren't getting paid for the, for the past month of work based on the government shutdown. So maybe they just decided we're going to do it this way. <laughs> could be. This is how we want to do it. Heck with it. Yeah. No, I'm sure they had very good reason. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wait and find out, I hope. I think Dana might have an answer. IVS control. And the ta the reported yeah. uh, reported uh, visibility may actually be the tower visibility, so surface visibility may have been better. So if the IVRs are controlling, then that's what's going to, uh, at least here in the United States, that's what mm -hmm. will uh, be the guidance. And I had the exact same scenario this past week as a matter of fact coming into atlanta um the uh, rvrs were six, greater than six thousand but the tower was actually reporting a half mile so uh, okay so years. most other agencies when that is the situation they put on the atis the rvrs for the uh in use runway that they they didn't so my question is if you're going to write an atis make it something that it's useful for the pilot to read so he can come in with confidence knowing that the rvrs are actually acceptable and he doesn't have to worry about making an illegal approach so that that would be my my rejoiner yeah Most of the, all the major airports that uh i recall going to here in the states nick um they do not put the rvrs on the atis itself because they change they're changing so rapidly so right. you wait well, until you're with approach control and or tower, and then that's when they start telling you what the RVRs are. Yeah, but if they're changing rapidly and they're still within limits, that's fine. If they're changing rapidly and going out of limits, you need to know. So my, my answer is I, I don't really need to know exactly what the RVR is. Uh, I need to know that it is likely to be within limits. So give me an RVR that shows me that I can conduct the approach legally. 
and uh, then I'd be happy. But perhaps it's just because I'm an old Comanche. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it, I I agree with you, uh, Jeff. the 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 reality is, is that with it being controlling and it being such a uh, an, a thing that changes so frequently, they'd have to put out a brand new ATIS every time that changed. Well, so it's not the way it works in Europe. Well, you're not in Europe, sir. You're not in Europe, sir. Welcome, welcome, <laughs> to, welcome, welcome to, to Boston. That's no excuse for slapdash behavior. Well, well, this is the way we do it here. This is the way we do it. All right. Well, I'm glad you had a great uh, experience uh, flying into Boston. <laughs> Welcome to Boston, Captain Nick. Any, anything else you want to complain about before we move on? Oh, no, no. It'll be plenty later. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Don't, don't waste it all now. Save some for... Okay. Well, Dana, how have you been, sir? Doing great. Uh, I did, you know, since we're on this conversation about RVRs, I did actually, as first time, and I forgot to mention it last week, completely forgot about it, but last week I did my first auto land uh, on the 88 as a captain. I think I've done two or three in my entire career as a first officer, and mm-hmm. it's I have only been flying with the, I've got a hundred and uh, about 180 hours right now. And so I've already had to do my first auto land this past week. The well, didn't, was. didn't you say something about doing an auto land or a cat two auto land and you were getting close to disconnecting it, but you let it land and it was a not right. a great landing. Yeah. But I, I, I did, I did mention, I did talk about it, but I, mm-hmm. what I didn't mention was it was my first one. As oh, okay. It's the same one that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah. Same one I'm talking same about, one. but it was my first one. Oh, okay. So uh, since uh, the last show, not a whole lot's going on. I uh, haven't flown um, since last uh, last week. So oh. I go out. Uh, I'm off this entire week. Then I go out and I work seven straight days starting on Sunday, um, which, by the way, under 117, you can do under one good old fashioned uh, was it, uh, 121 rules prior. You could never do that. So you can fly far more, be more tired. And uh, fly more days in a row. Isn't that odd how that all happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, FAR 117 rules were supposed to make it where you had more rest, and now we're working more than we were in less rest. Correct. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't yeah, make get, a lot of sense. I've got uh, about, uh, when I have my domicile, quite literally domicile layover, I basically have about 12 hours, a little over 12 hours, so that by the time you go ahead and... Uh, Get the employee bus, go to the employee parking lot, get in the car, drive home, then have to do the same thing coming back. You know, you don't even get eight hours behind the door. So it's, uh, <clears throat> I'm not complaining either, Captain Nick, but uh, part 117 is for the birds, quite literally. I hate it. Are we the birds? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, seven seven days on the truck sounds like really hard work and it's over f- the top. Yeah, it's, it's way, way too much. It's over the top. Yeah. Speaking of over the top, Steph, how have you been? Good. Glad I don't have to work seven days in a row anymore, but that happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've been good. Um, not a whole lot going on for me either since the last show. Uh, I've been kind of lazy. Had a uh, nice weekend up in Asheville last weekend. Um, just kind of relaxing and catching up after the holidays. Excellent. How's the weather up there? Any any snow on the ground still or? Um. Melted? 
when I got up there on Saturday, there was just like a, it almost looked like a recent dusting on the very tops of some of the mountains and it didn't last very long. It was uh, 60 something degrees on Sunday, mm-hmm. like went for a hike in a t-shirt. Oh, so that was nice. Yeah. Very spring-like weather, I guess. It will change this weekend though. It is. There is snow yeah, I've in noticed, the forecast. Uh, yeah. Before I left on the trip, it was kind of uh, in the... I guess pushing the seventies here in Atlanta, upper sixties. And then today I noticed it was a little bit nippier than Yes. And I think the low tonight, my watch is telling me twenty eight. It's chilly. Yikes. I think it's about the same here in Atlanta. Gonna be kind of chilly. Below freezing. Okay. Um, well, you know, Dana, you mentioned that uh, you are flying a three day and a four day, I believe you said, seven days in a row. Correct. Um, and and I knew that. And you know how I knew that? Because finally we have something that that's been put out there, right? You well, talk about it, right? I've I've had a uh, calendar on the website, and many of the people that listen to the show know that uh, that I always put my schedule on, and so that's how people know where to find me and when and that kind of thing. And then a lot of times people contact me and say, "Hey, I noticed you're going to be in Little Rock on the 24th. Um, you know, are you going to be up for a meetup?" And I said, "Yeah, let's do that." Well. Um, we finally figured out a way to get more participation from the other crew members. And uh, I now, or we now call the uh, calendar, the APG community calendar. And uh, they, um, we all have, all the hosts have access to it as well as uh, Hillel, uh, who actually created the calendar. And it was really supposed to be more clightly, uh, closely integrated and, and it is with, uh, with Slack, but it's, it's much more than that. It's on the website, uh, under uh, calendar and, uh, you can go straight to it now by going to airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. And, uh, it's our way to put where we are, where we're going to be and potential, uh, meetups, etc. So I think this is going to work out well to be able to, uh, get that, convey that information out there, uh, for as many people as possible. So I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, and I actually, the computer idiot that I am figured out how to get my schedule out there. Excellent. I saw that. And, uh, that is, uh, that's very nice. You it's know, what I just us. want to say as a, uh, as someone who uses that Slack team member and looks at the meetups all the time, Hillel just has done a wonderful job organizing that and putting that calendar together. What an amazing thing that he did and how kind of him to pull that together for us. I just really want to thank him for it. And uh, he works really, really hard putting that together. And uh, people should look at Slack and we'll talk about that later. But again, we need to thank Hillel. Yes. Thank you, Hillel. And uh, again, you don't necessarily, I mean, I, we do recommend that you join our Slack team. But you don't have to uh, if you want to look at the calendar and see what's going on as well. It's just that you get a little bit higher level of awareness if you are part of our Slack team as well. Um, and Jeff, let me ask you this. Since I'm mm-hmm. new to the calendar, how do people contact you? They go through the website or they well, email you? Um, they usually send uh, yeah email to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Um, and then we're going to talk about it at the end of the show, um, because we're on social media. Dr. Steph usually tells us about all the ways that you can kind of keep track of what's going on with us, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Slack. Um, so I I was, I was more looking to, you know, for if with my schedule being out there as Mm -hmm. to how people can, you know, contact me directly. Well, how would they contact you directly, uh, Dana? Don't you have a uh, an airline pilot guy email address? Maybe yes, we need to sort that out, and we can figure out a uh, easy way to do that. 
Yeah. Okay. Let's I have, have some. I have right some now. ideas, but we'll, we can maybe <laughs> brainstorm. Uh, okay. Off air, and then we will tell you what we have come up with. So you're it's not a work exactly. in, wondering. Work in progress. What what we decided, or exactly. no, I'll tell you something now, and then change our minds. And that will probably happen. <laughs> it sure. might happen anyway. Yeah. When we will reach that higher level of awareness. We can even you know, using the calendar entries. You can actually probably put ways to contact people in mm. right in there as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so many ways to do it. You know this technological world of ours. Um, I also want to mention, uh, since we're talking about the airline pilot guy website, uh, Arash is our, uh, website, uh, guru. And again, at some point soon, we're going to get together and, and talk about some, doing some things with the site, including, um, you know, getting one of those, uh, what are they called? Secure socket layer things where I'm sure that many of you have meant, uh, have visited the site and it says it's not safe. It's not secure. It's because we, you know, haven't paid a certain amount of money to put in this little piece of software that makes it secure. But uh, we will be doing that um, sometime here in the future. But uh, one of the wonderful things, a new thing on the site, um, it's only been active now, I think, for, I don't know, a month or two, a couple months. Uh, Tiffany Walsh is our APG librarian, and we have a page called the APG Library. Uh, where uh, she kind of manages um, all kinds of great suggestions and various categories, all related to aviation, uh, regarding books that uh, people have read and recommended uh, be included there. And she's done a, real, a lot of work, and I uh, want to thank Tiffany for, for doing that and keeping on top of all that. So check out the APG library. Again, it's one of the menu items on the on the website that you should check out. There you go. Um, how many of you are using Rosterbuster? No. <laughs> okay. Probably not, Steph. Yeah. Just I have no clue what it is. Yeah. Okay. I've never heard of it. Okay. Well, uh, many people listening to the show, I've heard uh, the fine folks on, on PTUK talk about Rosterbuster and uh, people that they follow that are using it. It's just another way to kind of access your schedule and share your schedule, et cetera. And uh, early on, the the folks at the Roster Buster um, contacted me, and and at, at that point, Acme uh, wasn't really working with Roster Buster, and uh, I worked with them a little bit, and then it just wasn't going anywhere, and then I kind of just forgot about it, and then I decided I'd uh, give it a, a shot again, and I signed up and found out that uh, Acme definitely is all part of the system, works like a charm. Um, it's a uh, for a year's service, it's like 12 bucks. It's like a, a dollar a month. It's definitely well worth it. And so uh, for those of you out there who are using Rosterbuster or are following people on that app, I'm there now. So um, please, I don't know if I, I have to approve somebody's to be a friend or whatever, kind of like Facebook. I'm not sure how, how, how it works exactly, but uh, just do a search for me and add me to your list of people if you want to see what kind of trips I'm flying, where I am and all that kind of stuff. So. Just wanted to mention that I'm uh, a nice thing about it is I have a nice little uh, Apple watch app that goes along with it. And it's pretty, pretty handy. So uh, I've been pretty happy with that. Um, hmm, my trip last week, uh, I believe it was the day after we recorded our last show. I was in uh, New York city, flew into Newark and then uh, had the layover in Manhattan. They, it, they say at the Sheraton Times Square, but it's kind of not really in Times Square, not far from Times Square. But anyway, um, 
a fine bunch of people uh, saw that I was going to be in Manhattan and said, I think it's time for another New York City uh, meetup. And I said, I agree. And the location, uh, I believe it's called Faces and Names, and it was just about a block north of the hotel. And we met there on Thursday evening around six o'clock. And I brought my Zoom H5 and recorded some audio. And this is the point where I push this button and we listen to what I recorded. Oh, I'm not here to sing. I'm here to record this wonderful meetup we have here in at the where are we? Faces and Places. And I hope that I'm not overmodulating and blowing this recording. But, uh, I'm here with a great group of people. Let's see, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine of us at uh, Faces and Places on 54th and 7th in New York City. And we're going to start off with somebody here that uh, you've heard from before in the past. She's a big part of our APG community. Her name, Tanya, and she's going to say something to all of you. Hello, APG crew and APG listeners. It's so great to be at another wonderful APG meetup. Everyone, like, it was a bigger turnout than we expected. It was really wonderful. We had some wonderful drinks, wonderful food, and more importantly, wonderful company. And this was so much fun. I agree. Great time. Got to move over here to somebody who is a professional in the uh, radio industry. His name, Radio Roger. Say something to our APG community, Radio Roger. Say something intelligent, I guess. Well, I didn't say intel- intelligent. Well, I'm not sure I can do intelligent, but this is great. Uh, belatedly happy birthday. Thank you. And I meant everything I said. You do terrific work. You're an well, thank you. I really appreciate that. No, from, you, you really you are have good. credibility in this whole thing, you know, so I appreciate that. I, I, or if you don't have credibility, at least I try to fake it. Well, you know, that's what I do, too. People actually think I'm an airline pilot. And here we have another member of our APG community. His name, David Abbey. Or Abbey. Abbey. Yeah, either way, I was telling Jeff today, don't get so hung up on pronunciations. So um, I'll do anything. Uh, I mean, uh, you can call me anything. Anyway, great to be here, Jeff. I'm glad you uh, had time for the meetup, and we have a, a great turnout tonight. Fun time. A little bit loud, but um, what? it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, all, it's all good, and thanks for all you do, Jeff, and Happy New Year. Uh, thanks happy for all New you year. do, David. Happy New Year to the whole APG crew and community. Uh, I can't tell you how special you are. <laughs> all right, over here. We have a gentleman who is... Uh, part of our uh, meetup tonight and tell us who you are and uh, what the heck you're doing here. I am Jason Rabinowitz. I'm airline flyer on Twitter. My good friend David Abbey, I think you just heard from, invited me out tonight. Happy to be out here, always meeting up with local Av geeks. My friend Joe right here. How's it going? Jo- uh, Joseph Schmidt. I'm uh, String and Rudder on Twitter. Uh, pleasure to be here as well. Also know uh, basically everyone here through David and, uh, and Jason as well. Uh, originally from Long Island, New York, and uh, happy to be in the city today. And, um, yeah, so it's a great, great aviation meetup. You know, I think I just got the string and rudder thing. You're a violinist and a pilot. It took wow. me a long time to get that one, too. It did. It took me a, oh, it took you a long time as well? Okay. 
Because I'm thinking, wait, you <laughs> more than I want to admit. Mute. Usually it's like stick and rudder. Yeah. Well, why is it string and oh, rudder? You know, some, so, uh, some point when I was going through flight school, someone said, hey, you might want to take a look at this book. It's got some good stuff in there. And actually, it changed my life forever because I said, oh, it's finally somebody who's talking about the stuff that matters with flying. And I said, well, you know what? I've got the and rudder part. Might as well get the string in there somewhere. So, <laughs> Awesome. So great meeting you guys for the first time. Thanks for coming out. It was awesome. And let's see, I'm going to make my way over here to the other end of the table. Excuse me. And we have this lovely couple. They're wondering why the heck they bothered to come all the way over here to Manhattan. But uh, I'm glad they did. It is Jonathan and Terry uh, Alexandratos. You know, it's so great that we got to meet up today. I was just thinking this morning about how much I missed New York City meetups and how much I really, really was hoping for the next one. So it was so great that you all did this for me. And I'm really glad that you stuck around for Captain Jeff because this has been fantastic. Um, and I'm ready to go home now. And uh, I had a great night. So thanks, everyone. Well, you know, it was all for you. I'm glad that we uh, pleased you. <laughs> you want to say anything? Well, I'll just say that I'm flying to Denver on Monday, and APG meetups always make me less nervous about flying. So grateful for that. Really? I thought it would make you actually more nervous <laughs> hanging around with people like me. No, that's good. I'm glad that we helped. And I think Tanya is telling me I need to come back over here. You want to say something else? I just wanted to also say, how could I forget? The best part of the evening was catching up again with the wonderful Captain Jack. Ah, uh, how sweet. Thank you very much, Tanya. Always great to see you. And uh, that's it from Faces and Places in New York City, Manhattan Island. What an awesome place. Bye. Yeah, I don't uh, like the name Faces and Faces and Names. I think Faces and Places is a better name for that place. So you just went with it at yeah. least three times. Yeah, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and looks like I've, I've already broken the screen sharing uh, in my yeah. You're good at video. that, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, and it was just the first time. Uh, huh. Okay, I was going to see if I could probably uh, try to. Get it to work over here with my FaceTime camera, but that's not working either. <laughs> well, you know, you come back on in uh, YouTube when uh, when you switched over there. I could see you in YouTube, but not uh, here on our screen. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Weird. Okay. Well, that's interesting because neither of my cameras is showing a light that, that indicates to me that they're on. Uh, the Chinese government's hacked them. And Probably. gone on YouTube as well. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, it, that's okay. It's an audio show. It, we don't have to see my ugly mug. Just have to hear my voice. So anyway, it was a great meetup, as you could tell. They had great music, too. Um, and uh, yeah, what else to say? Other than it was not faces and places. It was faces and names. And uh, when we first got there around 6 o'clock, 6.15, it was very quiet. Well, relatively quiet. You could actually hear a conversation. But then as the night wore on and more people got in there, you know, the volume level started going up. And then I guess somebody goes, oh, you can hardly hear the music. Let me turn the music up. And then, of course, everybody else starts yelling and they go, oh, can't hear the music anymore. Let's turn the music up. <laughs> so, yeah. It, uh, oh, well, can't complain about that, I guess. It was a good time. 
All right. That's all I have to say about meetups since the last show. Anything else to discuss before we uh, move on to the coffee fund? I'll say one more thing about meetups because I was just saying to Captain Nick that we or APG is so fortunate to have such a great group of people, uh, such a wonderful community to be able to meet with and get to know. And I've been very fortunate to be a part of it. And uh, we're really very lucky. I concur. Yeah, I agree. It's a lot of fun. That's why I decided to put out my uh, schedule out there so that hopefully I can be a part of more meetups throughout the uh, throughout the APG land. Don't make him beg, folks. Don't make me beg, please. Yeah, it's not a pretty thing. <laughs> All right. Um, well, with that, then I think it's time for us to talk about the coffee fund very quickly. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. That's the Java Jive. We play that most of the time to uh, indicate that we're talking about the uh, coffee fund and the Coffee Fund Cadre. It's your way to support the show financially. And if you have the financial resources to do that, you should go over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee and learn all about the different ways that you can support us. First is something we call the Classic Fund, and that's via PayPal, and you can do a one-time donation or a recurring donation. And since the last episode, we have a few people that took us up on that. Mazuz Karim, Jeff Muller, a recurring donator, and Nolan Thompson. So thank you very much, guys, for your contributions. And I believe, oh, you know what? Happy birthday, Anissa. I believe that your birthday is coming up this weekend. And I saw that on the calendar. So happy birthday. That is uh, Jeff Muller's lovely wife. And uh, the other way to support the show, be part of the Coffee Fun Cadre, is via Patreon. You You can become a patron of the show. And that's patreon.com slash airline pilot guy. All that information is available on the website. Check it out. Thank you very much, everyone, for your generous contributions. Stand by for news. first item in our feedback or excuse me news folder is an article regarding a Boeing 737 Max 8 stuck in Iran since December 14 a real headache for Norwegian Airlines and this is from airlive.net on December 14th a Norwegian 737 Max 8 flying from Dubai to Oslo suffered an engine problem and was forced to perform an emergency descent from 32,000 feet to land in Iran the aircraft registration Lima November Bravo Kilo Echo had to circle to burn fuel and shut down one of the engines prior 
to landing at Shiraz International Airport. No, wait a minute, and shut down one of the engines. That doesn't make any sense. I think the reason why they had to land and divert and land in Iran is because the engine had to be shut down, right? Um, interesting. I'm not sure I like the construction of that paragraph. Anyway, this was the first time that a Norwegian aircraft has ever landed in the country as the airline doesn't have any regular services or contacts in the country. Norwegian Airlines got the stranded passengers to Oslo after sending a replacement aircraft. Uh, the passengers have now officially entered Iran and no longer are allowed to enter the United States under the visa waiver program. This means if any of them are flying onwards from Oslo to New York, which many are, they have to go to a U.S. embassy and ask for permission. They might have to do it for the rest of their lives. That was an interesting little twist, I think. Um, Norwegian sent a crew of engineers and maintenance personnel to Iran, but it looks like the plane was not able to be fixed and is going to need a new engine. But due to various sanctions in Iran or on Iran, importing spare parts for existing Airbus and Boeing aircraft in Iran is forbidden. Special arrangements will have to be made between Iranian and U.S. authorities. It's an interesting story. You know, I'm curious about a couple of things about that. What if some of those passengers were U.S. citizens? Are they able to come home? And, and what happens if they leave home again to fly to Norway or the U.K.? That's a fascinating perspective on this. I have no idea. Yeah, it sounds like a big headache all around for everyone. It does. And then the other question I have, uh, and Nick, you may be able to answer this, is, uh, you know, when you have to make a diversion or you have an emergency, depending on where you are and where your flight space is, how do you choose where you go? I mean, would you, how do you choose Iran if you know that there's a, a real problem with the uh, um, relations between your nation and theirs? Well, it, it, there's some pretty high terrain around there, and it may be that uh, there weren't any other suitable diversions available uh and that is a problem uh there's very high uh floor there so basically uh you know the ground is around ten thousand feet high and there's much higher mountains around so it may be that uh the escape profile of following an engine prof engine failure took them in the direction of Shiraz, knowing that that was the only airfield that they could go to uh, in their situation, because I don't know what Hyder 737 will stabilize on one engine, but I would have thought it'll be around 20, 25,000, somewhere around there, uh, depending on the weight. Um, but uh, if that was the case and they were using that as an emergency en route diversion, then it was really behind on them to make some sort of arrangements there. If it was an airfield that was going to be a major problem for the land at, then they should have choose, taken a separate route, another route that didn't involve going through that part of high terrain. So it sounds like they might not have done all the work they needed to behind the scenes to make sure it was going to work for them if they ever had an airplane throw in there. Anybody else care to no, I think that was Lend. a good assessment. No, nope. and isn't Shiraz a red wine? It is. It is. In, uh, so it's, it's a very lovely. good wine. You get some wine. lovely Iranian red wines. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, looking at the map and their track, um, where, you know, where else would they go at that point? I mean, there are not a lot of choices. It doesn't look like to me. Uh, no, they're not, and uh, it's one of the reasons we use that uh, or have that airfield as a nominated emergency diversion. But uh, you know, if 
push comes to shove, you have to go there. You have to go there. And, uh, you know, um, I, I realize now that they probably will be looking at it again going, well, actually, there's ramifications here we hadn't considered. Yeah. Uh, and certainly when it becomes obvious to their passengers that if they end up diverting to some of these places, they could have a lot of problems if they're frequent flyers, frequent travelers with uh, their future travel plans, uh, they might be much less keen to uh, go uh, with an airline that, uh, uses that airfield as, or any Iranian airfield as a, a possible diversion. You know, or he's overflying that, that airspace in the the first place. I mean, yeah, I'm just looking yeah. at the yeah, map. I point. think there's other ways you could go, even in a 737 between those two routes. I'm not a dispatcher, flight planner, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Just doesn't seem like it would be an absolute necessary thing to to do that route. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure of it, but I think at Acme, we, we are not allowed to go in the airspace. We're, we're flight planned around that. That'd be mm -hmm. a question for dispatcher Mike, but I'm pretty sure that there there are certain airspaces in the world that we don't go over, and I'm sure that's one of them. Mm -hmm. I think you're right, Dana. Perhaps uh, dispatcher Mike can uh, uh, give us some information about that, chime in. But again, not a, not a U.S. airline, so. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. Agreements are different. I, I know I've been on aircraft that have been in that airspace on airlines that are not U.S. airlines. Uh, it does bring up interesting questions if you're if your country, you know, that you're a citizen of, does not have good relations, then um, you, know, you might want to think about those things when you book your flights, perhaps. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it's hard the to chances know. Of this yeah, happening? Well, I'm very remote, very remote. <laughs> so yeah, I, how I would, would you think, know? How would you and know? And a lot of people wouldn't know. No. Exactly. I mean, I didn't even think about something like the ramifications of this. And I'm wondering if this is one of those situations where, you know, they make an exception and they say, OK, these particular passengers just happen to be on that airplane. That, I think you you'd know. have you. They'd be silly not to. But yeah. it's the government. So Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's also and it's also the media getting some extra hype out of it, too. Doesn't oh, always yeah. have to be logic what? involved. <laughs> hype media. What are you talking about, Dana? No, just come on no way. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the second item in the folder. Um, Lion Air ends search for crashed Boeing 737 MAX 8's cockpit voice recorder from airlive.net. And uh, it said on January 3rd that they were ending their search for the cockpit voice recorder, the CVR, uh, the from the 737 MAX that uh, crashed into the Java Sea in October. But in, in this article, it says Indonesian investigators said they plan to launch their own probe as soon as possible. And, uh, and then I just happened to see another news article uh, that said, yes, in fact, Indonesia will launch a renewed search effort as early as Tuesday, which was yesterday, to find the cockpit voice recorder from a Lion Air jet that crashed into the Java Sea in October. Uh, quote from the National Transportation Safety Commission uh, KNKT Chief Soranto, ooh, we'll just say Mr. T, uh, told Reuters that if the weather is good, the ship will start to depart today. And uh, so they're they're continuing to search for that cockpit voice recorder because I think that's going to give us some good information about exactly what happened in that in that cockpit before it crashed. And. Aeromexico B737-800 at Guadalajara on the 3rd of January. Uh, ground down 
main wheels on landing. This is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, let's see, registration X-ray Alpha Alpha Mike Victor performing flight 120 from Mexico City to Guadalajara. Um, let's see, landed on Guadalajara's runway 28 following a seemingly uneventful flight when smoke and flames appeared from the landing gear. The aircraft came to a stop on the runway with all four main wheels ground down. Emergency services responded and sprayed the landing gear. The passengers disembarked normally. The runway needed to be closed. The airline reported upon landing smoke appeared in the landing gear, which was controlled by emergency services. The 151 passengers and crew have disembarked as well. Not really a lot of information. There are some photos in the uh, Aviation Herald article that didn't transfer to the uh, Evernote article. Uh, so you can go directly to that link there to the Aviation Herald if you want to see those. But uh, yeah, they did a nice job of grinding those main wheels down to the nubs. And that's the only information we have so far, unless they've come up with something, some updates on this. I I would, sounds like maybe they landed with the packing brake on. That's possible. Uh, in the commentary on the, the Aviation Herald website, there were several people that said that that actually could have been what happened here. Do you not get a... No, I'm thinking it's a Boeing. Of course, you wouldn't get a warning. Well, you would think the on the on the Mad Dog you would if you have the parking brake set. Oh, really? Oh, well, you see, you fly a decent airplane, Jeff. <laughs> I mean, you get a you get a. Um, it's old a, technology, anyway, is what you're trying to say, right? Like it should yeah. be available. Yeah. McDonnell Douglas makes a different aircraft than Boeing does. Exactly. Yeah. True. That is true. And you probably get a warning when you deploy the anchor as well. We do, yeah. And what you have to be very careful of is make sure your leg is nowhere near the chain. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we we uh, we had a, a skipper who um, got in, in the habit of idly playing with the parking brake lever in the cruise when he was bored, flicking it back and forth. Uh -oh. Why you'd want to do that, I do not know. Uh, and eventually, uh, um, with the wheels being a bit wet and uh, up there and the the uh, gear had cold soaked uh, he managed to freeze the brakes in the on position so uh, of course all, <laughs> it was a panic then because <laughs> you couldn't release them again uh, but very luckily as they descended and they everything warmed up again they released back to the normal position but <laughs> i think that taught him a lesson and the, the answer is um, when you're on the flight deck um, None of those switches, levers, or knobs are to be played with <laughs> unless you're going to move them for a very specific purpose. He needed uh, a uh, fidget spinner. Exactly. That's what he needs. <laughs> Don't mess about with stuff just for the sake of it, just to see if it still works. I have to say that there have been times in my <laughs> 37, 38-year flying career that I have looked at things and gone, wonder what would happen if I – And then, but I've always kind of <laughs> said, nope, Jeff – don't do it. Don't touch it. You don't want to be on the news. You don't, don't want to be it. in the aviation. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I mean, Let somebody it, else do it. Yeah. It reminds me of a, of, a, of a time I was coming out of Johannesburg and we had a very minor fault with uh, one of the um, air conditioning packs, which also pressurized the aircraft. And as we reached the top of climb, the first officer said, oh, do you want me to do a, a pack reset? and uh, try and get rid of that. And it was just a sensor that had X'd out because it wasn't getting valid data anymore. And I looked at the journey we had to do over darkest Africa for the next 
nine or ten hours. And I said, no, no, it's working fine. If we're going to do it, let's do it at the top of descent, not right at the beginning of the trip. And we, uh, in fact, he reminded me at the top of the set, oh, we were going to reset that pack. Uh, and we did it. And, of course, the pack failed uh, on the reset. So we were already with one pack. And that would have been a situation I would have not have enjoyed uh, trolling through Africa on any one pack. So, you know, the answer is if you don't really need to do something, leave it alone until you're in a situation where it doesn't matter if, you, uh, if it subsequently has a problem. Yeah, um, what's what's the phrase I can never remember or the saying I can never remember? It's like you perfection. can always do something once. Perfection is the enemy of of good enough, or what? What's the phrase? <laughs> there's, there's a real saying that I can never remember. Mike, Mike no, it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Yeah, there's another one too, though. That's all right. I'll look it Steph, up. Steph, I can't fix it. this one in post. So. Oh, fine. Yeah, oh, well. I was hoping you all would help me here, and you've all failed. <laughs> Sorry, You're we're wrong. not doctors. We can't help. Yeah, we're not, we're not doctors, and we're not HR. So <laughs> Some, someone will help me. Yeah, I'm sure somebody will come up with it. Someone who loves me will come to my rescue here. Uh, we all love you. You know that. Okay. Uh, Chris, yeah. speaking of loving, Chris loves us and we love him. Chris Cheatwood in uh, Northern Alabama. Uh, the Guru. Also, also known as The Guru. Uh, gave us a link to this article from airlinerwatch.com. And it says from Dateline, Montreal. Air travel will become more affordable and more environmentally friendly with 3D printing technology in the near future. The airplanes of American Boeing and European Airbus already have a few components produced with 3D printing. The soap dishes actually in the uh, labs, I believe. No, I'm just kidding. They're using some other pieces as well. Uh, although 3D printing technology becomes more and more common in many industries, it's still relatively a relatively small ch share in the aviation industry. In the future, therefore, Boeing and Airbus, the two major manufacturers, plan to increase the number of such parts in the production of passenger planes. The first airplane containing a 3D printed component took off in 2014. It was an Airbus A350 with a small 3D printed titanium part located under the pylon connecting jet engines to the wings of the plane. Since then, a number of engines have fallen off. No, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> oh, since then, about the 747. <laughs> the number of such parts has steadily increased. For instance, Boeing already has 60,000 3D printed parts used in its aircraft, which is still relatively a small number, considering that a Boeing 747 consists of 6 million parts. Both manufacturers, however, agree that 3D printing technology provides them with entirely new benefits and opportunities, such as manufacturing complex components that would not be possible with conventional production methods. Um, now, you know, I think of 3D printing as uh, those little printers that you can buy from Monoprice and other places that use plastic. But uh, 3D printing is also something that they can do with titanium and other steel uh, things and metals and Whatever. The, That's the technical term for it is additive manufacturing. There you go. AM, baby. That's the future. <laughs> <laughs> not not AI, AM. Got it. That's AM, As Steph. opposed to PM. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, uh, Chris, for sending us the link to that. Um, now, this is significant. Um, Southwest Airlines is... One of those airlines that was just a uh, doing things extremely different in the uh, 
aviation world many, many years ago. And it was led by a gentleman named Herb Kelleher. Uh, he founded the uh, airline and he died yesterday at age 87. And that was, when was this article? A couple days that ago, was two I guess. Days, it was a couple days ago. Yeah. Okay. And, um, but he, he lived a nice long life, 87 years old. Um, and this is an article uh, that was published quite some time ago. I think it was uh, early, was it in the 90s or the 2000, early 2000s? Anyway. 91. 91, thank you. And uh, there's also uh, an accompanying uh, video uh, from YouTube that uh, someone sent us as well that uh, I believe actually it was the guru that sent in the 60 Minutes interview uh, Southwest's Herb Kelleher. Uh, very interesting and informative um, video that you should all watch because you can kind of get a, a, a feel, a taste of this guy's um, personality, which I think was a huge uh, factor in the success of this airline. And many, many airlines out there today use Southwest's model as a model for their business plan for operating low cost carriers. And, uh, anyway, he, uh, he was quite the man, very funny guy, and we're going to really miss him, but we're really going to, um, you know, uh, bask in all of the wonderful things that he brought to our industry for time, for a long time to come. No, so yeah. Herb Kelleher was really the, the, the one of the founders of low-cost airlines. Southwest isn't necessarily that any longer, but when they started, no. who can believe the legacy that they turned into the legacy carrier that they are? And it also, if it weren't for Herb Kelleher and Southwest and the arguments that took place between uh, Southwest and Braniff and Continental, Houston Hobby would not be as big an airport as it is. And they also the talked right, about a... Per- uh, Go ahead. Right amendment and all of that, yeah. Oh, left field. Yep. And yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, he was really just, um, he just did things differently at a time when everyone was kind of doing things the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, That, that uh, interview from 60 minutes is, uh, you know, has a lot of interesting information regarding that. And they kind of focused it, I guess, during that time, uh, America West and Southwest were really butting heads uh, for the, uh, the right to uh, basically dominate Phoenix Sky Harbor, and uh, the uh, America West CEO was not very happy about Southwest's um, their efforts. You know, their efforts there, yeah. Um, Herb Kelleher also brought hot pants to the flight attendants of Southwest. If you remember, that was one of their selling points quite a while when they first started. I'm not I'm not trying to be evil and sexist and everything, but it's really true. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, in fact, again. Uh, watch that video. You'll see exactly what Mike is talking about there. Um, things have changed quite a bit since the um, the nineties, and uh, but anyway, um, so we're going to miss um, Herb. Rest in peace, sir. Thanks for doing everything that you did uh, in the industry. Absolutely. And uh, moving on, unhappy passengers give what? British Airways a bumpy oh. ride. So yeah. passengers are never unhappy, right? They're always happy. They're always happy. Beings. They like flying and they're always well, nice to the pilots. No, no. Okay. not always, Steph. Uh, according to this article from thetimes.co.uk, British Airways has landed near the foot of a league table of short-haul airlines operating in the UK amid passenger dissatisfaction 
over its food, uncomfortable seats, and pricing. The airline was ranked below many budget operators, such as Jet2, Norwegian, Flybe, and EasyJet, in an authoritative annual passenger survey, coming in 15th out of 19 carriers. Ryanair was at the bottom of the table. And uh, I guess the, the um, organization uh, that compiled this was which? Question mark. Travel. Which? Authoritative. Oh. Yeah. Definitely. Which? Not not the uh, Salem. Um, <laughs> that's one of the witches. Like, who, what, where, when, why, how, which? Yeah. Did someone Maybe. put them out? <laughs> anyway. Um, Apparently, they're doing some things at BA to try to reverse this um, this uh, perception. But I'm not sure how they're doing because I don't. I've never flown on British Airways myself. I had uh, a flight on British Airways this past summer. It was mm-hmm. long haul, so not competing with the uh, you know short haul um, right. uh, budget carriers. Uh, but it was a very nice experience. It was also in business class. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, the, the food was excellent, <laughs> and um, the service was was really nice. I, I had a pleasant experience. Just you know, they should really consult with our good friend Neville Bounds, who yes. loves British Air, and he could fix them right up. You're right, Micah. Um, is Neville with us today in the chat? No, he's tough. A little late over there in the UK. Um, yeah, so. Uh, that's all we have to say about that right now, I guess. Um, and then finally, a cockpit canopy <laughs> falls off an F-15 at 30,000 feet. And the article from popularmechanics.com uh, starts off by saying, losing the canopy at 30,000 feet isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person in a fighter jet, but it's still a heck of an unpleasant experience but it didn't matter to the crew of an Israeli Air Force F-15. The two-person crew braved battering winds and freezing temperatures after their cockpit canopy detached in mid-flight, leaving them exposed to the elements, and landed the jet at a nearby military airfield. It's only the third time in history an F-15 cockpit has detached in flight, and in all three cases, air crews were able to safely land their planes. Now, I have a little bit of audio that we can listen to if you'd like. Um, and I'm going to have to uh, read the, uh, what do they call those things? Subtitles? Um, while closed captioning. Because they're speaking mostly in Israeli. Or no, Hebrew, I guess. It would be the right term for the language they speak. And uh, so I'll try to do my best to uh, to give you what they're saying here. So here we go. What height are you going to stay at? The navigator calls out to the pilot by radio. Really should say intercom. I hear you. Do you hear me? I'm taking it in for a landing at the nearest base without a canopy. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. We're out without a canopy and headed to within the range of the nearest base. 
The uh, younger man says, try to take it below 200 knots. We're headed for a landing at Nevatim. Nevatim. We have no problem getting to the base. Continue moving forward. Are you with me, brother? Yes. Is everything okay? Is your seat down? Yes. I'm very scared. <laughs> he didn't say that. We're making an immediate landing. Can you please put lights out? In the tower at this place said yes. Okay, copy. We will advance to the one-third cable. Copy that. The one-third cable mark is set. Pilot says wheels down for landing. Maybe Hillel can tell me how I did with the translation. But I was just reading somebody else's translation, actually. So don't don't bother telling me, Hillel. <laughs> it wasn't me. Um, so that was a, an interesting little experience there. Did you hear the Obviously, the, uh, the navigator, uh, the first off of uh, the um, flight lieutenant uh, or first lieutenant was younger than the pilot. Um, at least it sounds that way. And it sounds like he was not very happy about the situation. Well, it's going to be a bit windy, Jeff. Yeah, a little bit. Probably more windy for the guy in the back than it is in the front, right? Or would it make uh, a difference? Probably the reverse, actually, because the guy in the back, I suspect, has got pretty good protection. And he can duck his head right down and he doesn't have to look out. Oh, okay. Right? So the guy in the front's got to still try and fly. But um, it's not like a depressurization in a civvy aircraft. The... the, the uh, Cockpits of military aircraft are generally uh, only pressurized to around half your altitude. So if he was at 30 ground, the cockpit probably would have been pressurized to 15,000. Uh, and therefore, you, we used to use a rule of thumb of half height plus two. So uh, if we're at 30,000 feet, it would have been 15,000 plus two is 17,000 feet would have been the canopy, the uh, cockpit pressurization level. So there's not that much of a, of a pressure change when, uh, if you lose the canopy, it would have been damn noisy. And uh, if you'd been extremely high speed, that could have been dangerous because if the uh, wind gets under your helmet uh, or whatever, then it could really, uh, you know, it could rip your uh, bone dome off, which could be very painful um, uh, or worse. But uh, once you've got your head down, the visor down, you've got a mask on, uh, it should be really quite survivable. Communication is the biggest thing. The noise is incredible. So get the speed back, get the aircraft down. Um, and then Bob's your uncle. We used to fly um, the Hunter around the circuit with the canopy rolled all the way back just for fun. Uh, you know, your elbow out on the, uh, on the cockpit rail. Looking cool. You're a little fresh air. Cool. Yeah, I couldn't hear a thing, but... Uh, <laughs> You look great. <laughs> That's the important thing. <laughs> exactly right. Well, Hillel is with us in the chat room, and he said that uh, the translation was pretty accurate. Not completely, but uh, pretty close. And uh, and also, as you mentioned, the, uh, the F-15s are pressurized. But a good point made that they're not like passenger airliners uh, with very high uh, PSID or uh, pressure differential uh, because they are... They have their helmets on and their oxygen masks on the entire time. So you don't have to worry so much about... About the know, Delta P? About the Delta... Oh, no. Sorry. Steph, you got to warn me when I'm you say sorry. that. Okay, go ahead and say that again. About the Delta P? Yes. yes. 
Thank you. For those of the, <laughs> who are listening it's, it's to the show. It's been a while since we've had a Delta P <laughs> yeah, reference. I'm sorry. If you're a new listener, uh, anytime we say Delta P, I, I try to ring the bell. <laughs> but uh, I didn't think of it. Well, you know, F-15s are just built like tanks. I, Nick uh, and I were talking about it before, back about four years ago, an Israeli F-15 lost a wing and came down uh, easily, you know, landed and, and, and everybody was saved. Just an incredible aircraft. Yeah. In fact, the... The pilot didn't know that basically most of the wing was gone until after he was on the ground. And when uh, yeah, McDonald's- that's because F fifteen pilots never look out. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I feel like we might be getting some feedback. On yeah, that. we're definitely going to get some feedback on that. Perhaps I should just stop talking about it right now. <laughs> no, no, let Nick keep talking. I'll dig himself a bigger hole. That's it. I'm just going to sit back and wait for the. <laughs> The return. <laughs> you know, they're not Boeings. That's I'm true. sure they would be by now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's. That was it for the news. And I think now it's time for the one of the best part of the shows. Not the best, but pretty darn good stuff. We call it the feedback segment. And this is where I push this button. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's start off with uh, some feedback from Deanna. And she's a veterinarian in North Carolina. And she was trying to contact us via that that uh, darn website form uh, on the website. And it wasn't working. And so, hey, by the way, if anybody sent us feedback and we still haven't covered your feedback. It's either because it was, uh, it was just no good and we just threw it away or more, more, more likely it's because we never got it because, uh, that form stopped working at some point. And so now we just recommend everybody use, uh, the email feedback at airlinepilotguy.com until we get that thing fixed or use the app. Another way to do it. So Deanna, um, says happy new year to you. Uh, let's see. Uh, she said that she sent some feedback via the website form and she's waited with waiting with bated breath to hear hers. And then I told her, yeah, we didn't get it. So she said, yes, I sent it through the website. It was about pilot health and when, and if doctors can violate confidential confidentiality and notify the FAA, if there is a serious risk uh, presented by a pilot's health issue. Is there a better way to send feedback? I thought, Oh wait, that's in, I don't need to read that. Um, just in this case, uh, wait, no, I'm reading what I wrote back to her. <laughs> I should have taken all this out. Um, basically she wanted Dr. Steph to weigh in on this. Uh, she said specifically, I was thinking of the German winds pilot who locked his captain out of the cockpit and intentionally crashed the plane. He had serious mental issues and his doctor had advised him not to fly. Why would the doctor not have revoked his medical certificate? Uh, would he have specifically had to tell the doctor, I'm going to crash an airliner before the doctor was compelled to report? I'm a veterinary, veterinarian and we are held by confidentiality laws as well. However, there are a few animal diseases that present a public health threat to humans and or agriculture. These are reportable to state authorities. So, Dr. Steph. Yeah. Hey, Deanna. Great question. Um, and I really, uh, so in the German wings instant instance, um, it probably gets a little bit trickier to discuss just because it was 
um, it happened in a country where whose laws I'm not as familiar with, but I can tell you more about uh, what would happen here in the U.S. Um, I think everyone here, whether you're um, uh, know much about medicine in this country or not, most people have heard of this thing called HIPAA that we have, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act passed in 1966 or 1996. Wow, um, and it basically says it, it covers a lot of. Um, protected health information. So things that would clearly identify a patient uh, to someone else and perhaps disclose sensitive health information uh, without that person's consent. We're not allowed to do, to do those things as physicians. Um, basically, we have to, um, if we're going to talk about something related to a patient or a patient case, you have to remove all identifying information so that it can't be tied to a specific person. Um, you know, you can't, for example, you know, I can't see Dana as a patient and then when he's not on the the show, come on the show and say, "Oh, hey, Dana was my patient, and we talked about this, that, and the other, and he's got all these these issues." Um, that's a violation of HIPAA and would would not be okay in any circumstance. And you'd be scarred for life too. <laughs> well, not not me, perhaps everyone else listening. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so there are some exceptions to this, and specifically in the case of when there is a. Um, I'm going to read it because it's it's uh, specific terminology. It says, when it's necessary to prevent or lessen a serious and imminent threat to the health or safety of a person or the public and is a threat to a person or persons reasonably um, uh, able to prevent or lessen the threat, including the target of the threat. So, uh, you know, who would that involve? So, it, you know, if someone threatens that they're going to harm themselves, if they name a specific incredible threat to another person. If they I identify that they're going to do something that would harm the public, then there is a duty to warn in most states. And I can speak specifically to the state I practice in, which happens to be North Carolina. And um, so what North Carolina says is that a, re a responsible professional, it's pretty broad, um, you know, terminology there. They're not saying you must be a doctor or a a specific type of doctor, like a psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, it, a, re a responsible professional may disclose confidential information. So something that a patient says to you in confidence, basically, uh, when in their opinion, there is an imminent danger to the health or safety of the client or another individual, or there is a likelihood of the commission of a felony or a violent misdemeanor. Um, so who do you warn in those cases? Um, it can be the uh, it varies by state. So these are all become kind of state-specific things in the United States. It may vary uh, from country to country, but I get the sense that, especially in Europe, a lot of countries have um, similar um, legal terminology in place. But if there's a threat that you can reasonably identify and you believe it to be a credible threat, you can warn the person who's the target of the threat. You can warn law enforcement to take take action if they if they deem it necessary. So yes, you can break confidentiality in those cases. Now, the it gets a little bit tricky because there has to be uh, for the the provider, the person who's hearing this information from from the patient or from the the client in whatever case it is, um, something that's specific, something that's identifiable. Usually, uh, naming exactly what they're going to do, what they intend to do, a person or group of people they intend to target. If you don't have those things, then it becomes very much a gray area and it's it's much harder to say, yes, I thought there was a, a credible threat. 
So it's a, it's a little bit of a judgment call and uh, it, it can be really hard for a, a practitioner or a provider to make that judgment call sometimes, I think. I, it is probably a little bit different in the case of aviation medical examiners. Um, I, I can't get it. I didn't research that quite as much there. You know, it's certainly uh, they're subject to these same laws and rules and regulations. Um, however, if there's something that compromises flight safety, uh, whatever that medical condition is, they're going to follow the rules of uh, that the FAA has set forth and their recommendations for individual uh, medical conditions. So it's not quite as sacrosanct as a priest's confessional. Not quite. I mean, if you, it, and I don't know about priests, I, we may need their uh, input there as well. But if someone were to come into me and say, hey, I'm going to carry out this specific you know, act of, uh, act of or criminal act that's a felony or a violent misdemeanor against this specific person, then I have a, a duty and a responsibility under North Carolina laws to act to warn that person somehow, whether it's through law enforcement or uh, directly to the, the potential victim. I'm curious, this lady is a vet and she has to maintain confidentiality as well. Does that mean she has to ask permission of the dog before she reveals what illness it has. I, well, <laughs> I don't think that's quite. She can't tell me about the health of my friend's puppy. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is like that. You know, if if um, you know where this comes into play more often than not is um, between people who are friends outside of a work environment and says, oh, hey, you know, you, my friend, um, my friend Bob said he came to see you in the office the other day. How's he doing? Uh, you, okay. can't, yeah. you can't say anything, you know. Um, you can say, well, you can you can ask Bob how he's doing. Um, but I guess it's the same thing for for your pet. You know, if 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 your veterinarian um, uh, saw a friend of yours just in a, you know, uh, like at, the, at a restaurant or a supermarket or something and said, Oh, hey, I know you you see my friend's dog and I know they had this problem. How's how's the dog doing? I guess they can't report that or they can't share that information either. Okay. I guess it really is it, it's confidentiality between the pet's owners, not between the pet and the owner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and what and what she's saying is that if there's a um a specific illness that uh, an animal has that represents a public health hazard to a person or group of individuals, then they would have a responsibility to report that sure. to state authorities. I understand from the publicity that surrounded the event she refers to that uh, the confidentiality law, uh, the medical confidentiality law mm -hmm. in Germany was particularly tight. And uh, as a consequence, this chap, because he concealed to the many um, doctors he saw that he mm -hmm. uh, had various problems and he was receiving multiple treatments and things they weren't allowed to uh, you know talk uh, to each other, to each other and, and find mm -hmm. out the big picture yeah, yeah. and, and it, it gets tricky in that sense you know if if you have someone who uh, say seeks medical advice from from someone but doesn't disclose their profession per se which doesn't always come up in some cases um, there may not be a perceived uh, threat in that instance. You know, um, if you have if, to report it if they're a threat to themselves or others. But if you don't know what profession if, they are, you don't know. You don't know what the threat is. Threat. Exactly. Yeah. So, 
uh, it's it's good information to to make note of if you're seeing patients. But um, I can see where it gets tricky. It gets into some gray areas, and unless the person who's going to commit those acts specifically gives you a reason to be on guard about it. There's not much you can do about it. They can tell you that they're, you know, a patient could tell you that they're depressed, that they're, um, you know, that they've had thoughts of being suicidal, but unless they specifically say in that instance that they have a plan in place to harm themselves or to harm others, that's not a reportable thing in most cases. Now, if he's telling that to his aviation medical examiner, that may be something completely different because that falls under different regulations in terms of flight safety. But if they tell that to their regular doctor or their psychologist or their psychiatrist, unless there's a specific plan that they name or they they say, hey, yeah, I'm actually going to do this. Um, no, that's not a reportable thing. You know, I do have another question, though. She said that she was a veterinarian, but what branch did she serve in? Army, Navy, Navy, Marine? <laughs> Badoom, bam, where's my rim shot? Yeah. So I, I hope that answers um, your question, Deanna. And, yeah, uh, I think the chance of you flying with a drunk pilot are much higher than you flying with someone who's uh, likely to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ducking futs. Mm-hmm. And what's worse is a... <laughs> we heard you the first time, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's even worse is a, uh, a drunk uh, psycho pilot. Yes. Well, <laughs> fortunately, you know, most people out there are decent and are professionals and work hard. I don't know, Steph. The, you haven't found with some of the people that yeah, I fly let, with. Let's take a straw yeah. poll amongst us. <laughs> mm-hmm. decent and professional? My hand is firmly oh, yeah, in the on. air here. <laughs> the rest of us, nah. Yeah. I don't see Jeff's avatar raising his hand. Well, yeah. it's... No. This is got very frustrating to me. His eyes are crossed. He looks move. decidedly drunk. Yeah. Well, thanks, Deanna. What you really, uh, you know, started a good conversation there. I'm not sure we really, you know, answered it. Um, what was the what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, definitively. No, and I do apologize for my semi-humorous um, veterinary um, questions. Yeah, how insensitive. Well, actually, I, I mean, it, it is interesting because I actually did not realize that vets were held to the same uh, confidentiality laws. Yeah, I didn't either. That is interesting. interesting. I mean, it makes sense. It just never occurred to me for whatever reason. Um, I wonder where in, um, and I wonder where you are in North Carolina, Deanna. Anyway. Is is that where the hippo of the Hippocratic Oath came from? From the veterinary <laughs> profession? <laughs> or Hippocrates. <laughs> oh. You know. Anyway. Could have been. First, but I prefer my version. That's sure. probably it. All right, let's move on before this thing degenerates into... <laughs> Too late. Yeah, Maybe generate any further. Any further. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about Dana's germs. No, you can skip two. Oh, no. I, I, skip. <laughs> I can't wait for this one. <laughs> so Rob says, hi, crew. Just listen to the episode when you talked about picking up germs from the hotel rooms like the TV remote. Dana, don't be worrying about no remote germs. I watched a video that this guy set up. He was curious as to how the cups and glasses were cleaned in his room when there is never any fresh glasses or cups on the maid's cart. He set up a hidden camera in the bathroom and bedroom, and this blew him away when he reviewed what he had filmed. The maid came in, put the cups and glasses in the sink. Okay, so far so good. Uh, One out, 
came back into the bathroom with some spray bottles and washcloth. All okay at this stage. Uh, she then got the cloth and cleaned around the toilet bowl. <laughs> Uh-oh. And then went to the sink and washed <laughs> the cups and glasses with the same cloth. This was in a high-end hotel, not some cheap motel. So... Oh, you, you guys will be safe because you stay in cheap motels, don't you? <laughs> no, very. This no. Actually, I've seen this was actually a sixty minutes episode. Yeah, many so years I've seen ago the same thing, and I've seen it. And yeah, it's, it it happens. And uh, they brought in a, a black light and looked at the uh, oh yeah, you don't want to see cover. It. I just won't no, go everything they found. But uh, yeah, I mean, there can be messes anywhere. Well, the only good thing is your toilet bowl is usually cleaner than your kitchen worktop counter, and that's why we let our dogs drink out of them. Yeah. Uh, except hey, because the, and then it just refills itself. It's great, especially <laughs> when your dog is toilet bowl height. <laughs> Poor Taco can't benefit from that. You know what? I don't care. I really don't care. It's just whatever. You know, it's not going to kill me. <laughs> more, more I don't than ever likely. touch the glasses in the hotel room. <laughs> I do ever. every time. I do. I'm nope. still here. I just turned 60 and I'm still okay. <laughs> I drink the water from I the airplane. I just think I'm building up my immune system. I like to challenge exactly. it from time to time. With yes. some... uh, but we're there drinking alcohol out of ours. Which is... There so you go. killed the germs. <laughs> Not really. I'm drinking but... water out of that glass. Stuff. <laughs> Not strong enough. Uh, yeah. Sissies. Okay. Um, thanks, Rob. Uh, Liz and Jen sent this. Well, actually, Liz sent this. She said that she and Jen Niffer... We're discussing the old TV series, Get Smart. She found this very amusing YouTube clip featuring their take on airlines. As Jen said, funny on so many levels. Enjoy. How come we're the only ones aboard, Chief? Security. I'll fill you in as soon as we're safe at 30,000 feet. Chief, we're now flying at 30,000 feet. Good. Now, Max, listen carefully. We just received a call from an informer who told us... That's incredible, Chief. Take it down. Chief, there's one thing I forgot to mention. What's that? It's top secret. Take it up. You can always go around. Anyway, uh, it's a very cute clip of uh, <laughs> them on a... Mostly 707. There is a shot of a 747, I think, flying overhead. But the was, were most they of, trying to say it was the same airplane? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, but it was very cute. I loved um, that uh, series in the uh, from the 60s and 70s, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Same. It was the intro with the hundreds oh, yeah. of doors, so, so seemingly so that he had to walk through to get into their secret headquarters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it ends with the phone booth. I was just. Uh, yeah. I was just humming that song the other day and both of my layovers, both in South Carolina, uh, this company must have some kind of a sweet deal with the uh, airport authorities in South Carolina. But it's the when you're walking, um, you're leaving the airport terminal going from the secure restricted area to the, you know, the public area. You walk through these little doors and as they as they see you approaching, they open up and there's like a series of three or four of them. And it, it's just like every time I walk through them, I'm thinking, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And then everybody looks at me like, "What? What are you singing?" Because yeah. most of the people that I'm flying with have no idea what "Get Smart" is. Oh, uh, yeah, but it's when you take your shoe off and try and pretend it's a telephone, <laughs> they get really worried. Yes. I use a banana. 
John Adams I, was just brilliant. He was just amazing. And Barbara Feldon has got to be one of the sexiest women in the world. Even I now, agree. I spoke with her on the radio once, and uh, and and she's just um, just just an amazing actress, and, and really had an amazing life. Yeah, great show. All right, um, Brian from Katy, Texas, writes in, and he says, "Does Acme have a cookbook or a beer brewing book?" Seems like an opportunity, but who really wants airline food at home? So this is from jalopnik.com. So what's the big deal with airline food? It's the joke without a punchline, but it's something I've been legitimately asking myself since I found out that United Airlines is releasing their own, their very own cookbook chock full of recipes that they serve in flight. Yep. A whole cookbook of airline food. Thankfully though, it's not as bad as it sounds. United's executive chef, chefs, chefs, United's executive chefs have teamed up with chefs from the Trotter Project, a nonprofit organization that provides education to disadvantaged young, disadvantaged young chefs. According to the, I should have somebody else read this Detroit free press. Thankfully, this isn't a recipe book chock full of things like five interesting ways to eat a peanut or I'm too hungry to complain about these lukewarm mashed potatoes. It's the good stuff from business class. You know, where Steph flies. That That's an awful small can, cookbook. Can confirm the food is usually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So the, the, the article goes on to talk about uh, the the cookbook from United and some other airlines that have put out uh, cookbooks in the past. Uh, I, and I'm wondering, I don't think it mentions this in this article, but I do know, or I think I know, <laughs> uh, and if I don't, don't correct me, that most of the food that is served aboard airliners have a very high salt content and other spices because our taste buds are affected by uh, altitude. Well, your sense of smell is affected, I think, more oh. so, wasn't it? Which affects your sense of taste. Okay, that makes sense. And But yeah. yes, you're correct. So they need to add more salts and more spices to make it taste more like what you would expect if you were not at a cabin altitude of 8,000 feet. I can just hear the, uh, the, the advertisement for this book now. Want your food over-seasoned, flavorless, <laughs> and mushy? Well, try the United Cookbook. And lukewarm. <laughs> lukewarm. I, 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 I'm not sure about that sense of smell thing because when I break wind, my first officer still <laughs> turn green. <laughs> well, that just sub says something about. Uh, yeah. Imagine how powerful, bad it really could be. Man. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to sit right next to him there, uh, Micah. <laughs> Lucky Micah. Lucky Micah. He's pretty good, but he's no Captain L. I think I will write the book, though, entitled Five Interesting Ways to Eat a Peanut. Hmm. I think that'd be a bestseller. I'm glad that. Never mind. HR is present. So, this reminds me um, that we were talking about breaking wind and that kind of thing. And uh, I received I, my daughter Natalie is in Germany or Austria or somewhere over there, <laughs> somewhere in Europe. And uh, she sends. I, I get these texts from her today, and she has these pictures of like biplanes and, and men with these wings, you know, like the early days of, of aviation. I keep looking at the camera, but there's no reason for me to do that. Like people um, who attach wings to their arms and try yeah. to like 
flap off so a cliff. Clearly, it's some yeah. kind of an aviation museum. And then she 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 sends a picture, a snapshot, and then she says MD eighty eight question mark. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, gosh, even my youngest daughter has she been listening my precious to the show? One, I know. And then she sends she shows some more. I think it's like the in a gondola of some you know balloon or something. Uh, and he's and she says, didn't know you were working today. No. <laughs> and then and then she sends another picture of another one, like a single wing, thing, but it's still like, you know, very old, um, you know, uh, technology. And she she ends this whole conversation with Gutenfart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can neither confirm nor deny that we may have put Natalie up to sending you those. <laughs> well, I, 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 that, that would make sense now that I'm thinking about it because I, I basically sent her a little emoticon with a little, a, a, a teardrop oh. dropping from the right oh. eye. Like you, et, et you, what is it? Et tu, Brutus? Anyway, uh, so I, I had to do the Google Translate to uh, figure out what Gutenfart means, and it's not what I thought. It means good ride, not oh really, yeah, not what uh, not Nick what was you were thinking. F a a f a h r t, I believe. Fart, fart. I'm sure the Germans in our, our, our community right will now. be. Going, yes. oh, <laughs> anyway, that's what reminded me. You know, Nick's Nick's uh, talking about the. Uh, rarefied air so to speak yeah anyway. not rarefied enough <laughs> very rare ah raw i should say how did Texas. we get here from cookbooks i don't know okay but thank you brian from katie <laughs> gave us uh somewhere to uh Good launch off into some other yes guten fart to you brian from katie uh texas charlie and sean uh, sent us a link to this article. You may have heard about this. Interesting uh, and controversial, I think. Um, tip your flight attendant? Is this true? If so, is this what we're coming to? As a restaurant manager, I wish our industry would just pay a fair wage instead of $2.13 per hour and expect the guest to pay for their server's living expenses. I'm pausing. I know, Nick, and everybody listening from other parts of the world, not the United States, that that's not the system, but it is here uh, that they pay extremely low uh, pay rates, but and they expect everybody to make up the difference. A majority of their pay comes from tipping, and I'm afraid that a lot of people don't know that. Anyway, um, continuing with Texas Charlie, as an airline patron, I fear the ultra low cost carriers will start lowering fares any way they can. And as pilots wages go up, will the cabin crew wages become gratuity centered inquiring minds want to know. And, uh, he put a link to this business insider, uh, article, uh, us based frontier airlines has started asking passengers to tip their cabin crew. The revelation was spotted by flight blogger JT Genter in the point sky. Genter said that in 350 flights on 51 different airlines he had never been asked to tip crew before. After ordering refreshments on the airline, passengers are handed a mobile tablet, which prompts them to add gratuity to their bill. According to Frontier, flight attendants will now earn tips on their individual sales. What do you think about this? Oh, I could let rip about the the, uh, the system here in the States. It's just a hidden tax that 
a lot of people don't realize they're paying. So why not just put the price to a reasonable level and, uh, you know, do away with tipping because it's an unfair system uh, because uh, it doesn't guarantee a, a wage, living wage for the people who do these menial tasks of serving uh, everybody. Uh, they deserve better than that. They deserve to know what they're getting at the end of the uh, month. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, you know, people do they think they're um, – they're doing something nice where in fact all they're really doing is paying their wages uh, mm -hmm. and uh, personally I, I think tipping is in a moral system an immoral system in the way that it has become i saw nothing wrong with a waiter getting a, a waitress getting a decent wage and then if you think you've had an exceptionally nice evening with really good service you're putting a little bit on top which is a little you know extra to say thank you for a a very nice evening, but having to pay someone's wage because the restaurant wants to cut its prices to the bone, uh, I think is is wrong. And to let that creep into other areas like uh, the airline world, where the people who are serving you aren't really there to serve you, they're there to ensure your safety uh, in the event of a mishap on the aircraft, and uh, you know to insist that some of their um, worth is really because they've just served you a drink i think it is is definitely sending the wrong message got a couple of things to say about this um one is um in maine we just passed a new minimum wage law there were all sorts of things going on for the past couple of years and they changed the minimum wage for uh wait people waiters and waitresses and the wait people were totally against it they didn't want it changed they didn't want it raised they didn't want it raised because they felt, based on the raise and how the tipping works, they would actually make less money with the raise than what they were making currently in the, with the current tipping system because some of them were making considerably more with tips than they would with a minimum wage and no tips. Uh, but in terms of tipping a flight attendant, I have many issues with that, Incredibly, incredible issues with it because a flight attendant is not a waiter nor a waitress. A flight attendant is a safety expert and is there for my safety and to make sure that I am, uh, as a passenger, taken care of in case of an emergency, in case of a medical emergency, in case of an evacuation, in case of whatever it happens to be. They are experts. They are trained. They are paid professionals. And they're not, yes, part of their job is to serve a cocktail here and there, but they do that to me and I'm paying for it in, uh, in coach. That's one thing. Maybe I'm paying for it and I'll give them the 20% tip that goes along with that. But in first class and business class, there's no charge for, uh, for drinks. So why would I even think of tipping them? And if their wages are reduced, then they're going to be making less money from their first class and business class passengers. Overall, it just makes no sense at all. And uh, if it starts with flight attendants, then why not pilots? It's just, I think it's a totally inappropriate thing. I'm all for tipping pilots, by the way. Just wanted to put that up. Make more well, money. I'll give you a, we'll give all you pilots a tip. Buy low, sell high. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll just reverse it and buy high and sell low. I have to wonder a little bit because they're using a, um, I, I haven't flown Frontier in quite a long time, um, but I tend to see this happening in a lot of places, places where you wouldn't normally expect to tip for whatever product is that you're purchasing or like receiving donuts and McDonald's when you're at a counter. I hate that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think part of it is the way that some of these generic um, mobile uh, point of service um, 
devices have been built that it's just kind of the default, you know, after you, they run your credit card, it goes, Oh, would you like to add a tip? Um, and then everyone looks at it and goes, Oh, well, if I don't add a tip, then I'm a real screwed here. You know, yeah, that's what I'm um, thinking like you go and get something to go. Yeah. Um, I, I've done that a, a couple times on the last There's trip. There's always and, the option to add a tip. Yeah. And I'm going, well, no, why would I tip? Didn't... And, but then I'm thinking, well, are they doing really any less work than the, uh, the the waiter or waitress at the table um you know it's, i keep going back and forth with that maybe i should give them a little tip or something but i don't know you're, as you said steph it's getting like completely out of control I, I think we tip the way that the i'm thinking of square in particular is the the um kind of offending thing here you know you you go and you yeah. purchase something and and they're using square and no matter what it was you could be like at a craft fair and it's like oh do you want to add a tip for this craft you just purchased <laughs> like no i don't want to add a tip <laughs> right but then you feel like a scrooge as you said yeah you know like if you don't yeah and, and it's not that i'm a cheapskate sob either i mean i just pulled in here to the marriott and uh uh unloaded and, and the guy at the front desk could leave your car here it's fine i'll watch it you can go park it later so i, I handed him five bucks i think that's pretty fair and then the 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 bellman uh, came by and helped me with my bags and carried them up to the room and I, and I gave him five bucks and I think that's pretty fair and but you know a, a flight attendant I'm hoping is being paid reasonable wages and if they're not then they should be because they're experts at what they do they are experts in safety and they're being paid like pilots are the door closes and the door opens they're paid for their flight and and it's not that I don't want them to be paid well and it's not that i wouldn't necessarily want to tip them but i where where's the appropriateness i think that's right, where, what do you, where do you draw the line on right it. all right so I'm, I'm gonna throw something out here as i normally do anyways but let's think of this for a second okay we are what's the first thing especially jeff nick myself as soon as somebody finds out that you work for an airline, what's the first thing they you generally well, probably the second thing once you find out you're a pilot. First thing they always ask is what's your route? Second thing is can you get me cheap airfare? All right. So that's what people all they care about. So when you and I'm not defending the idea of tipping uh in flight the uh, flight attendants at all. I I think that I agree with everyone on the panel. It's it's it shouldn't be done because they are there for your safety, period. So if you're flying for an airline that is a decent airline that pays their people a decent wage. That's a whole different ball game than all these people that are getting on these cheapskate airlines because they don't want to pay a decent wage. Now, Nick, I, I do, I do disagree with you in something. It's not, it's not an added tax. Uh, the VAT tax is an added tax the, you know, you guys over there in Europe are taxed to nobody's ends of, of businesses. And, and of course, you know, try to get on an airplane, go over there. It's $170 worth of taxes to come into England uh, alone. So, uh, you know, that's a different thing. Now, what, where I disagree, where we have fundamental disagreement is, is that I think that with people being motivated by a tipping system, that the people that are providing the service will tend to give better service in hopes of making more money, just as, as uh, Micah was alluding to. You're going to make more money, and if you if you're getting a regular paycheck, well, the reason why they don't want that is because well, now the government has access to a, how the much higher wage made. and how much you're making, how much they can tax them, and the whole reason why when I tip, I always tip in cash because Uncle Sam doesn't need to know about the cash 
A lot of people just put it on their credit card and then they get hit with, with the with the uh, taxes on that. So there, it, it's a double edged sword. It, it is it is it, if you pay people a fair living wage on on a, on a service industry, uh, not as a, a flight tenant, a flight tenant's paid specifically for the safety. But if you, you know, you get a driver or you get a person that's working in the restaurant, pouring your drinks, uh, you know, bringing you food. If you get great service, well, you get a great tip. If they pour me a little bit taller vodka or bourbon or scotch or whatever else, I'm going to tip them well. If they give me exactly one and one half ounce measured, they get exactly the appropriate tip to go along with that. So, you know, there, there is an advantage to it. And, and that is, is they, they earn what they, what they are, you know, are giving as far as service goes. And it's all about price. It, it comes down to, you know, at Acme or American United, you're not going to have ever see that. I don't think because they're fairly compensated the in-flight staff. Uh, you get to Frontiers and, and uh, Norwegians and Ryanairs. They pay them jack. I'm not going to say the word. Uh, jack crap. Yeah. So. Well, an interesting little twist on that is that at Frontier right now, um, the tips that are received are pooled together and shared equally amongst all members of the flight attendant crew on a given flight. So that kind of takes away the incentive for somebody to go above and beyond, right? I mean... Sure. I don't know. Yeah, and that, that's often the way it occurs because when you're tipping through a machine, there's no way that you will ever know whether the person who actually served you gets that money. Uh, what's the guarantee that says that will happen? Uh, it'll often go towards the restaurant owner, uh, and it's up to them to decide where it goes because there's no legal system. And as regards uh, tipping and avoiding paying taxes, well, I understand the restrictions and the resistance there is to funding your government here in uh, in America, and I really don't want to get into that discussion because I've I've got so many opinions on that, and this isn't a uh, um, a podcast about taxes, but. I think everyone needs to contribute a certain amount towards a country to ensure that it has the ability to do the things that uh, the government needs to do. And avoiding that system is self-defeating. And if you remember correctly, tips, the, the definition of it is to ensure proper service. Right. The service should be there automatically. Oh, very well said. With a flight attendant. Yes. Okay. Well, I think we covered that one pretty well. Um, thank you. Good Texas. discussion, actually. Well yeah. done, Texas, Charlie. You really stirred the pot there. <laughs> well, let's see. We talked, uh, discussed about uh, the Autoland ILS protection on, I believe it was the last show. Um, Adam Spink, our professional air traffic controller, manager, supervisor, uh, wrote in and said, just listening to the chat about ILS protection and auto lands in cat one might be worth saying that the details read out by Dana only apply in the U in United States. And I, th I thought we were, uh, we were, we were kind of clear on that, but maybe not. So that is only the United States that, uh, those, uh, details apply. He says in Europe and the rest of the world, the ILS critical area is always protected, regardless of weather, when the ILS is being used. 
When Category 2, Category 3 approaches, RVR 550 meters and clouds ceiling below 200 feet are in use, the ILS-sensitive area is also protected as part of air traffic control low visibility procedures when the approaching aircraft is within two nautical miles. At Heathrow, we have removed the cloud trigger for entering ATC low visibility procedures so we can continue with Cat 1 approaches even with some cloud at 100 feet. Regards, Adam. Thank you, Adam, for that clarification. Anything else to add, anybody? I learn something new every day. We do, you know, and as soon as you stop learning stuff, then it's time for us to move on to the next life. It's time for me to move on to the next life. Yes. No, it's not. <laughs> Are you saying it is now? <laughs> I thought you just said you learned well, something new. <laughs> I'm trying to resist learning all this new stuff because I'm thinking, <laughs> okay. well, I, I've only got four months to go. What's the point? That's what I was going to say. Not for four months, Nick. Not for four months. <laughs> you, you, you never know, okay? You never uh, know. Yes, you yeah. need that little morsel. I, I know. I know. I, no... I've seen my future. No. Yeah. <laughs> Dana had it for you. Right? With the... Oh, yes. Yeah. Dana's looked in his, his crystal testicles. <laughs> yeah. And, um, <laughs> he knows what's in store for me. My big crystal. Oh, That's boy. true. That's very, right. very big. Moving I mean, on. Only moving. one of them, though, just like Hitler. Huevos <laughs> grandes. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. Jacob writes, simming on the Mad Dog. Captain Jeff and Captain Dana, as well as the rest of the crew. But a question towards the two of you. After many years of flying the Airbus simulator, I finally found a good Mad Dog simulator in X-Plane 11. On my first flight, I had difficulty starting the engines without Googling the instructions. The reason, I wish we could do that. So, you know, <laughs> Google the instructions. How do I start these engines? The reason I couldn't get them to start had to do with my failure to turn on, quote, the two big white levers at the back of the pedestal, unquote. I'm sure they have a name, but... My Google search result uh, called them big white levers. I don't think we usually call them that. No. Um, after uh, moving these upwards, I had a successful engine start. What are these levers or levers, if you prefer, called? Uh, when and when are they moved during normal operations? Thanks and great meeting you and your FO along with other Houston community members last year at El Real. Hope to catch you another time. I hope so too, Jacob. Uh, he said, thanks. He's an ex Acme operations agent. And he said, um, PS addition to earlier message, by the way, I quite like your aircraft in ways. It's more advanced than the 737, uh, which shocked me main or what shocked me mainly was the overhead enunciator panel, which even the newest 737 does not have just idiot lights, similar to an automobile safe travels. Okay, that was not from me. That was from Jacob. <laughs> Don't get mad at me, all you 737 guys and gals. Um, so, Dana, what, what what are these two big white levers at the back of the pedestal called? I believe he's talking about the pneumatic crossfeed levers. I think you're right. I think so, too. That's what allows the air from the APU to the engines to allow the starters to engage and actually turn the engines over so they can start. We also use it for uh, uh, two other situations, and that is, of course, for uh, air conditioning off of the APU. So it's the same uh, ducting that comes off the APU. If those levers are closed, the APU can blow all the air it wants to, but they will never. The air would never get to the air conditioning packs. 
that's using the AP, using the APU. The other thing that they are used for is for uh, wing and tail de-ice. Well, really not the tail, but the wing de-ice mostly. Um, so if you don't have those open, then the air would not be able to go to the uh, leading edges of the wings to be able to de-ice the wings using hot air. Very good. Yep. So basically, it's just a manifold back there with um, high pressure air from the, well, depends on whether we're talking about the 88 or the 9. We'll just stick with the 88. The 8th and 13th stages, the 8th is a lower uh, compression stage and the 13th is a high pressure, which augments depending on, you know, if the pressure drops below a certain point. Uh, Or if you turn the, as Dana mentioned, the um, wing uh, airfoil anti-ice uh, the high pressure stage air is used. So you have a lot of hot, high pressure air in this manifold. And these levers, all they do is just really, literally, there's a cable that goes from that center console all the way back to the tail of area of the airplane where those valves are, moves those valves and isolates that center part of the manifold, basically. So yeah, look, you, uh, there's a lot of hot air in a mad dog. There, there is a lot of hot air in the mad dog. Especially and, 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 and <laughs> another very interesting uh, tidbit. I don't know if the simulator would actually do it, but if you were to pull one of the fire handles, you'd also see that, that pneumatic crossfeed valve lever would close. Mm-hmm. I bet it. I bet the uh, simulator does show that. They're pretty accurate. Yeah. So. So. Anyways, yeah. there it is. There it is. Pretty simple, actually. Okay. Um. I think we can squeeze out another one before we get to the point where we're going to do the plain tail. So careful. Now. Let's pardon me. I said careful. I'm not sure what's that being. Sounds like a bit of peristalsis at work there. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> squeeze one, one out. huh? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not paying attention to the words I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We are. <laughs> yes, you are. I heard that. You're pilot on again. <laughs> okay. Uh, Nolan writes in hello apg crew i discovered you while my wife and i were driving back from eaa air eaa air venture 2017 we had a few hours to become accustomed to your voices on our road trip back to down to new orleans an aviation career has always been my dream since i was a kid yep the beer is talking yep that's me in the flight suit and helmet around age five i'll put these pictures in the show notes Uh, and was solidified after taking my first plane ride with the EAA Young Eagles back in 1994 at the age of nine. Yet another embarrassing photo attached below. My parents even paid for me to take some sailplane lessons when I was 12, but the expense was too much at the time. After graduating from college in 2007, I started flight training but stopped after only four hours due to being sent on a foreign assignment to China. Finally, after returning to the States, I started training again in 2016 and picked up seven hours until work again, uh, once again, got in the way and off I went to another assignment away from home. Anyway, in 2017, I finally admitted to myself what my wife and family knew all along. I want to fly every day, all the time. My wife, my wife forced me to take vacation and we went to AirVenture 2017 for inspiration. It worked. Then on the drive back home, I discovered you all. Captain Jeff with his dry humor, Captain Nick with his strange vernacular, Captain Dana with his roundabout path to the airlines, and Dr. Steph with her marathon running and general aviation escapades. 
It was nice to hear that I was not the only marathon runner who loves flying. Woohoo! Woohoo! We moved to to unmute there. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) We moved to Houston at the end of 2017, renovated a house for the first eight months of 2018, and finally started flying again in October of 2018. This time I was flying with real purpose or with a real purpose to turn my passion into a career. I have to say that without my wife being so supportive and also pushing me to follow my dream, I would not be working towards this new chapter in our lives. Well, I just want to pause for a moment. Wow, your wife is a very special person, Nolan, and you're very lucky to have her, just got to say. Okay, the scariest part of all of this was to be able to admit to others that I have this goal of flying for a living. It just sounds so ridiculous to say it out loud after dreaming about it almost for almost 30 years, but I'm going to be a professional pilot. I'm trying to transition slowly to my new life and plan on continuing to work at my current job as an engineer until I have until I have my CFI. In the meantime, I will be flying at every opportunity as a part owner in a new-to-me 1966 Cherokee 140. I plan on having my PPL checkride by the end of January 2019, this month, and will jump straight into instrument and commercial. Thank you, doctor, captains, and the APG community for helping me to realize that this dream can be a reality. Listening to so many people in similar situations of mid-career shifting has really helped me pull or helped pull me along. To be honest, I never thought I was going to solo and I was a nervous wreck. But as my flight instructor was standing on the gear leg step and gave his last words of wisdom, takeoffs are optional, sir, and then proceeded to unplug his headset and ran aft from the big fan on the front of the 172. I knew that worst case, I could always go around. I just want to tell you all, good luck. We're all counting on you. Sincerely, Iron Flyer. Not due to the aircraft I fly, but the triathlons I've been known to do. Wow. That is so awesome, Nolan, to hear your story. And you have received inspiration from others telling their story. And now you are going to be the one that is going to give inspiration to so many others listening to the show. And we can't wait to hear how this journey progresses and certainly hope that you'll be able to make it to Oshkosh Air Venture this year because we're all going to be there and we look forward to meeting you personally. I, I love that. Uh, this feedback is brilliant. Um, we're going to take great joy from following uh, Iron Flyer um, and his story. But um, it was his little uh, comment there that his instructor said, takeoffs are optional. So it wasn't that. It was the unsaid bit about the landings that I thought was so good. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) They're not optional. Well done. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Must land eventually. Uh Uh-huh. What goes up must come down, basically. Yeah, congratulations, Nolan. This is, uh, you know, part of the reason why I even got involved with this podcast is so that I could share my story and, and, uh, maybe influence a few people to go ahead and take the chance and, and, and do or go after the dream that I always had. And it uh, took me a long time to convince myself to do it, but I did it and I absolutely have no regrets. So um, I really, really wish you the best on that, Nolan. And congratulations on taking the leap of faith and a big hug to your wife, because I'll tell you what, if it wasn't for my wife being as supportive as she was, 
there would have been no way I've, I could have uh, done what I have accomplished. So we need behind every good pilot is a good woman. Oh, oh hey, hey, or, hey, or hey, man. China. Or man. Or, you know, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> or, or now, nowadays, uh, yeah, behind every good female pilot, they could, could and should be a man. Or, you know, you never know. Or, or just or makes a match. Someone supportive. Uh, yes. Someone anyway. supportive. <laughs> I would just like to go. echo or, all of those uh, uh, comments and sentiments as well, Nolan. And um, I'm just glad that there's another marathon runner out there. So these guys won't think I'm quite so crazy anymore. No, nah, I won't do any good. We still yeah. think, yeah. think he's crazy. <laughs> I think behind every good pilot, there's a nice dog. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I don't know what's behind me, but it's time now for the best part of the show. Yes. Yippee! The old pilot's plane tales this week. The title, The Widowmakers. The old pilot's plane tales. The Widowmakers. A few aircraft have earned the dubious honor of being named a Widowmaker. One of the most notorious was the Martin B-26 Marauder, a twin-engine bomber used in the Second World War by the Army Air Corps. It was designed with a rather small wing area and, as a result, suffered from unusually high wing loading, making it prone to stalling, particularly on the approach and requiring a rather high landing speed of around 130 miles an hour, pretty fast for aircraft of that era. Early versions were grounded after several accidents on takeoff, landing, and just taxiing around as the gear had a tendency to collapse. Some modifications were made, but as inexperienced pilots were put into the cockpits, the accident rate grew. Rumours abounded that the Marauder was impossible to fly on one engine, so Colonel Jimmy Doolittle flew a demonstration from MacDill Army Field, making the point by both taking off and landing on only one engine. In 1942, aviation pioneer and company founder Glenn L. Martin was called before the Truman Committee, which was investigating defence contract abuse. The then-Senator, Harry S. Truman, asked Martin why the B-26 had issues. When Martin responded that the wings were too short, Truman curtly asked why the design had not been changed. Martin replied that the plans were too far along and, besides, his company already had the contract. Truman's pointed response was, in that case, the contract would be cancelled. Martin corrected the problem by adding an additional six feet to the wingspan, uprating the engines, adding more armour and larger guns. The Marauder gained other nicknames, such as the Martin Murderer, the Flying Coffin, and the Flying Prostitute, so named because it was fast and had no visible means of support, referring to its small wings. However, Despite its bad reputation, the Ninth Air Force stated that it had the lowest combat loss rate of any U.S. aircraft used during the war. As difficult to fly and dangerous as this aircraft was, the one that usually springs to mind when the Widowmaker epitaph is quoted is the original rocket ship, 
the Lockheed F-104 Starfighter. A product of Kelly Johnson's prodigious and mostly secret hotbed of aircraft design, the Skunk Works, the 104 was the very first Mach 2 fighter. Johnson had visited North Korea during the Korean conflict to ask serving fighter pilots about the kind of fighter they wanted. At the time, the USAF was equipped with the North American F-86 Sabre, which was being pitted against the MiG-15. Although the Sabre was larger and more complex, many pilots felt that the MiG was superior. When engaging from above, the MiG definitely held the advantage, but once in a turning fight, the situation evened itself out. The Sabre could do better in an instantaneous turn, but the MiG did well in sustained manoeuvres and had a better climb performance. The MiG was also better armed, better armoured and more powerful. Kelly took away the feeling that the pilots wanted a small, simple aircraft with excellent performance. So armed, he returned to his smelly design hideaway and set about building a new generation of fighter. His team looked at many possible concepts, but to achieve the desired high performance, they chose a design that would have the best possible capabilities by wrapping the lightest, most aerodynamically efficient airframe possible around a single powerful engine. The engine they chose was the new General Electric J79, a turbojet of much improved performance in comparison with other contemporary designs. Around this engine they built a slim, sleek, lightweight fuselage that would give a fantastic power-to-weight ratio. Lockheed presented the design to the Air Force in 1952 and they were interested enough to create a general operations requirement for a lightweight fighter to replace the North American F-100. Although three other companies had competing designs, Lockheed had an insurmountable lead and were granted a development contract for two prototypes, named the XF-104. The airframes progressed faster than the new engine, so the initial version was powered by a licensed version of the Armstrong Sidley Sapphire built by Wright. This first flew on March the 4th, 1954, less than a year from when the contract was signed. The prototypes didn't fare particularly well. The first had gear retraction problems and the second was destroyed a few weeks later during a gun firing trial. However, based on the initial flights, the next variant, the YF-104, was built with a lengthened fuselage, modified landing gear and intakes, and with the remarkable J-79 engine. The design evolved, with the airframe being strengthened and the addition of a ventral fin and work on the J-79 afterburner, but eventually, in early 1958 the first F-104 was delivered to the 83rd Fighter Interceptor Wing. The aircraft looked fantastic. It was long and pencil-thin, with a long, sharp nose which jutted well in front of the cheek intakes and even further in front of the tiny wings. Whereas most jet fighters of this period used a swept or delta wing design, which gave a good compromise between aerodynamic performance, lift, and internal space for fuel and equipment, 
Kelly Johnson had gone in a different direction. He optimised his aircraft for supersonic flight, and having tested many shapes, he decided that the most efficient was a very small, straight, mid-mounted, trapezoidal wing. That is, one that has a straight leading edge swept to the rear and a straight trailing edge swept forwards. The new wing design was extremely thin, with a thickness-to-cord ratio of only 3.36% and an aspect ratio of 2.45. The wing's leading edges were so sharp, a radius of 16 hundredths of an inch, which is less than half a millimetre, that they presented a cut hazard to the ground crew and protective guards had to be installed on the edges during maintenance. This was the sort of wing design that was being made for high-speed missiles since they operated almost exclusively in the supersonic speed range. The wing was so thin, only 4 inches, that's 10 centimetres at its thickest point, it couldn't accommodate fuel tanks, landing gear or internal weapons which all had to be located in the slim fuselage. The hydraulic cylinders that operated the ailerons were a mere one inch, 25 millimetres thick. A wing of this type was always going to present problems in the low speed range, and being so highly loaded, it gave the aircraft an uncomfortably high landing speed, even after installing both leading and trailing edge flaps. Lockheed even went as far as developing a boundary layer control system that blew high-pressure air over the trailing edge flaps to increase their efficiency and reduce landing speeds. This system, however, proved to be a maintenance nightmare in service and landing without it could be a harrowing experience. Mounted atop the single fin was the horizontal tail surface, being placed there to reduce inertia cross-coupling, a divergent effect that occurs when rapid rolling. Because the fin was only a little shorter than one of the wings, it could, when rudder was applied, cause a significant amount of lift, causing the aircraft to roll in the opposite direction to the rudder input. To counter this effect, the wings were canted downward, with a 10-degree anhedral. The fuselage was also designed with supersonic flight in mind. It had a small frontal area, a high fineness ratio, and within this slim tube was packed a great deal of essential equipment, such as the cockpit, a powerful cannon, all the fuel, the landing gear, the engine, the avionics, and the radar. The upside of this skinny design was that the aircraft produced very little drag. It had exceptional acceleration, a brilliant rate of climb, and a very potent top speed. The downside was that it had a poor sustained turn performance, and when it did try to turn hard, the lift-induced drag became very high. Despite its problems, it proved to be a capable record winner. It was the first operational fighter capable of sustained speeds of greater than Mach 2. It was the first aircraft to simultaneously hold the world speed record of 1,404 miles an hour and the altitude record of 91,243 feet, a record that the C-model broke when it reached 103,389 feet. 
It held a multitude of climbed height records. For example, it could reach 39,400 feet in under 100 seconds. The 104 was given a potent new gun in the M61 Vulcan 20mm cannon, which could fire 100 rounds a second. A six-barrel Gatling gun, once the problem of feeding linked ammunition was cured, it became the mainstay of many aircraft and was subsequently fitted to a whole range of fighters. However, as other more capable aircraft made their appearance, the chances of a 104 being able to achieve a gun skill became less and less likely. As a result, the gun was removed to make way for more fuel, recce cameras, or just to save weight. The other main weapon was the AIM-9 missile, a stern aspect heat seeker. It wasn't a long-range weapon, which meant the 104 was going to have to get in close to its adversaries. Not an ideal situation for an aircraft with such a poor turn performance. However, much later on, some versions were fitted with the AIM-7 Sparrow, a beyond-visual-range radar-guided missile. Probably the most controversial aspect of the Starfighter's design was the pilot escape system. Concerned that an ejector seat might not clear the aircraft's T-tail, the initial versions used the Stanley C-1 seat, which fired the pilot downwards through a floor hatch. This obviously became a major hazard in low-level situations, and before long, 21 American pilots, including a test pilot, had been killed in low-altitude emergencies because of it. The C-1 seat was eventually replaced with a Lockheed C-2 seat, which fired upwards, but could only be used with at least 90 knots of forward speed to aid parachute deployment. Many export versions of the Starfighter were retrofitted with the Martin Baker Mark 700 seat. After only three months in service with the USAF, the 104 was grounded after a series of engine-related accidents and orders for the aircraft shrank from 722 to a mere 155, and after a year, these aircraft were handed over to Air National Guard units. Subsequently, the F-104C entered service with the Tactical Air Command as a multi-role fighter and fighter-bomber, and the aircraft did see service in Vietnam, although it engaged in little aerial combat and scored no air-to-air kills. It flew a total of 5,200 missions for the loss of nine aircraft. By 1967, all the USAF Starfighter units were re-equipped with the F-4 Phantom. Just as the 104 was falling out of favour with American units, it became the aircraft of choice for the German Air Force, which was looking for a multi-role combat aircraft. In addition, the aircraft was purchased by Canada, Italy, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Greece, Turkey, Spain, Taiwan and Japan. Many of these sales, however, were marred by a bribery scandal. The German Minister of Defence, Franz Josef Strauss, was accused of having received at least $10 million for West Germany's purchase of more than 900 starfighters, 
and the Prince Consort of the Netherlands was forced to resign from his position as the Inspector General of the Dutch Armed Forces for accepting a $1 million bribe. Other controversies occurred around Europe and in Japan. A Senate investigation revealed that the Lockheed Board had paid $22 million in bribes to foreign officials, and the scandal nearly brought Lockheed down. Although many air forces had their fair share of problems with the 104, it was the German air force that seemed to suffer the most. Eric Hartmann, the world's top-scoring fighter ace and commander of one of Germany's first post-war squadrons, even before the Starfighter's introduction, deemed the 104 to be an unsafe aircraft with poor handling characteristics for aerial combat and unfit for Luftwaffe use. The aircraft was undoubtedly a handful. Takeoff speeds were around 190 knots. It flew around the circuit or instrument pattern at over 200 knots and landed at an eye-watering 180 knots. And high power had to be maintained to keep the boundary layer control working. In addition, it commonly suffered engine failures on takeoff and afterburner blowouts. It could develop wingtip oscillations that, in one case, sheared a wing completely off. A spurious stick pusher activation at low level killed one pilot, so it was common for others just to turn it off. It had a problem with asymmetric flap deployment and nose wheel shimmy that was so severe it could flip the aircraft onto its back. This, combined with a less than perfect training regime, Maintenance being conducted by conscripted military personnel, the poor German weather, and the demands of a low-level fighter-bomber role caused an appalling accident rate. The first crash occurred before the aircraft was a month old, and the bad start continued when, in June 1962, four F-104s practicing for an introduction into service display crashed in formation, killing all four pilots. These were just some of the 292 German F-104s to crash. The German Navy lost 30% of its aircraft. 116 pilots died, and grieving widows sued Lockheed. More than 30 of them received 3 million Deutschmarks each. In 1966, Johannes Steinhoff took over command of the Luftwaffe and grounded the entire Luftwaffe and Bundesmarine F-104 fleet until he was satisfied that problems had been resolved or at least reduced. The damage, however, had been done. The Starfighter was now being called the Widowmaker. But other countries had their own name for it. The Italians called it the Flying Coffin, and the Canadians, who crashed 46% of their inventory, named it the Lawn Dart or the Aluminium Death Tube. There was no doubt that the F-104 was a demanding aircraft to fly, but after a few years of hard-bought experience, the accident rates generally dropped to match other fighter types of the period that were less maligned but that was too late to save the aircraft's reputation. I, for one, though, 
always admired the sleek lines of an aircraft that seemed to be streaking along at Mach 2, even when parked on the flight line. For me, it was the original rocket ship, and I greatly admired it. I think we all thought that that thing was an amazing-looking airplane. Oh, so futuristic, Jeff, wasn't it, for its time? 1952, it was just a few years after the Second World War when Kelly Johnson and his the geniuses that were in the skunk work started working on that airplane. And they really built something that was, you know, would not look, have looked out of place a uh, hundred years later, streaking out into outer space. I thought it was a fabulous looking airplane, but sadly, uh, completely the wrong design for an aircraft that sh- was going to be a fighter bomber uh, and an interceptor, etc. It, it was, I thought, um, a bit of an exercise um, in what can we do with a design rather than actually designing a an aircraft that was fit for purpose i was kind of surprised that kelly you know in your story they talk you talk about kelly johnson going and actually talking with the fighter pilots and trying to determine what is it that they want perhaps they were <laughs> not thinking clearly when they said they wanted a fighter that would do mach 2 but not have the performance necessary to you know do any of those close-in dogfighting maneuvers that you're going to you know fast is good but you got to be also maneuverable. Yeah, the, it's funny that the F-104 is a favoured tactic uh, in my experience fighting them uh, in you know in peacetime, but very much uh, you know uh, nation versus nation when we fought the Germans and uh, the Italians uh, in their 104s when I was still in the Air Force uh, was their tactic was to to use uh, fighter controllers to bring them into a stern position and then they would cream down from very high altitude at incredibly high speed for stern attacks. Uh, which was something that the Korean pilots had suffered to a certain extent during the Korean War. That was the MiG's favorite tactic. But it was just one tactic out of a uh, what, what should be a playbook of multiple tactics. But I think Kelly Johnson might have misunderstood a little and developed an aircraft that was designed around a single uh, tactic when in fact what it should have been was a much more um, roundly designed fighter you know nick and i were uh, talking both uh, before uh, the show and, and during this and and it's amazing that uh, the f-104 first of all one of the things that was interesting about it is that uh, when nick was flying f-4s he mentioned that the f-104 was one of the few aircraft he could outmaneuver in the f-4 which uh, says <laughs> A He's lot. easily outmaneuvered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it says a lot about uh, the quality of the maneuverability <laughs> of the F-4. But the other thing is that Kelly Johnson, who's such an amazing designer, I mean, he designed the P-38. He designed a C-130. He designed the U-2 the uh, and the SR-71. And he would design the F-104, which was such a dog. Which one of those did he design first? The P-38 would P-38. have been the earliest one. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, you know, it kind of strikes me as a, a, almost like there was just inexperience put into it. It was like, like you, you've said, you know, it's something that looks interesting. It it fulfilled some uh, wish lists that pilots had, but it just wasn't 
perhaps as well thought out as it should have been. And perhaps that was because of inexperience in building and designing aircraft of this type to begin with. Yeah, you're quite right, Steph. It was the first step into a supersonic fighter, but it was only really designed to work well in the supersonic uh, speed range. And that's That's completely impractical. uh, You've got to be able to have a machine that will do uh, everything. Um, Because when you end up low speed, inevitably, um, you need to have an aircraft that will maneuver and and work in close and uh, and have authority over the nose and keep its energy. Um, So it needed to be a better all-rounder. Richard Bell in the uh, chat room says, did they refer to the 104 as the missile with a man in it? Very much so. Uh, That was um, uh, the manufacturer's uh, sort of strap line for the aircraft. Uh, It didn't stick because, uh, of course, it developed much more distinctive nicknames. (laughs) Negative. Uh, They would have loved to have kept that. Uh, and, And it's rather telling that the design of the aircraft very much resembled that of a missile. And a missile inevitably is supposed to be only a supersonic weapon uh, because, uh, you know, it's got to accelerate to a huge speed and it has to be able to maneuver supersonically and have very low drag. And supersonic performance and subsonic performance are two completely different things. And, um, you know, we don't realize now that the 104 was um, built for perhaps the wrong um, era. Uh, And what's more, it only sold well perhaps, uh, certainly because uh, of um, the scandal concerning the amount of bribery that went on inducing nations to buy it. But you've Uh, also got to remember that uh, this was a time of the Century Series, and it was early on in the development of jets. And the Century Series included the the F-100, the F-102, 103, the Delta Dagger, Delta Dart, uh, the 104, and the, uh, the 105. And in most cases, they were all not great aircraft. There was a time when we were designing aircraft that were set up to intercept missiles, high speed and get in the air and some dogfighting and intercepting bombers and stuff. But we were just learning about flying jets and flying supersonically. And none of those aircraft lasted a particularly, well, the 105 lasted a while, but the rest of them were pretty much one and done. The sad thing about the 104 was, though, that it claimed so many pilots' lives. Mm-hmm. You say the Canadians lost forty six percent of yeah, their that amazing that's crazy. Yeah. Nearly half of your entire inventory of aircraft. That's just unbelievable. I, I kind of chuckled when uh, you referred to some of the other nicknames it had. Uh, the flying coffin, which uh, in recent times we've uh, used that uh, nickname for the uh, A ten Thunderbolt. And uh, oh, the oh, other one, the lawn dart, uh, which we here in the States always refer to uh, the, the F-16 as the lawn dart. Yeah, yeah. These things do have a tendency <laughs> to skip generations. And yeah. it's like people think, oh, that's a clever name without realizing it's that, before. You know, that it's, it's been there before. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Widowmaker was very much associated with uh, the marauder of, uh, of, the first, of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, although it became appropriate for the 104, um, people were just reinventing the wheel. Well. Another great plane tale. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Old oh, well, thank you. And I have to mention uh, Miklos, uh, who was uh, one of the gentlemen, uh, one of our lovely listeners who uh, asked <clears> us, <throat> I'm assuming it's gentlemen, because I'm not quite sure uh, what the name Miklos uh, is, Christian name, surname, not sure. Um, uh, off in our, in our chat room, 
who suggested the uh, the 104 is a good plain tale. Um, but he wasn't the only one who thought that might make a good subject. But thanks very much indeed. Excellent. We have a great committee, don't, don't we? Oh, for sure. All right. Uh, David writes, while discussing the pilot at Zurich, who unfortunately felt the need to use disrespectful language to the air traffic controller, it got me wondering, in U.S. airspace, pilots dread the call from ATC, quote, advise when ready to copy this telephone number. Do European controllers do the same? Does that phrase give the pilot a similar sense of doom as we feel? <laughs> as airline crew, what is your company's policy or procedure when you get that call? If you're on the ground, do you return the call uh, before departing? If the message comes in the air, do you call during the next ground turn or wait until you're done flying for the day? Or maybe wait until the next year. <laughs> Probably not a good thing to do. Anyway, love your show. I added that last part. Uh, cheers, David. And he said, P.S. for your info. I'm a San Diego commercial rated pilot, though I don't fly for a living and volunteer for civil air patrol. That's awesome. Thank you, David. So Nick, I think that you're the only one that really can answer this. What happens in Europe when you get that, or do you ever hear that from a European controller? Do they say, uh, would you write, you know, would you write down this telephone number and give us a call? Uh, No, we don't. Okay. Uh, as far as I'm uh, aware, um, it's not a thing we do or have ever been asked to do, uh, and it has doesn't certainly doesn't have the same connotation um, that it would do in the states. Occasionally, I've asked for the uh, air traffic supervisor's number if I want to have a whinge at a way of by I've been controlled, uh, and it you know it's oh really oh okay, well, and then they give me a number. Uh, I've never had it really uh, done in the opposite direction. Um, it certainly, uh, I can see there's a there's a system in the the states where this is the beginning of what will be a, a form of investigation. But in the UK, uh, we tend to do these things via air safety reports and ASR. So if I think if uh, an air traffic controller feels that there has been a flight safety uh, risk or infringement, he will raise an air safety report and uh, the authorities will look at that and they will uh, talk to everyone involved if they think it's serious enough and they'll come up with a finding. But it's very much a a non-threat thing. Uh, It's done purely under the umbrella of flight safety. There's no implication that you'll have your license affected. just doesn't seem to happen in the same way over here it's it it's like the sort of damocles when i say over here i mean i'm in the states at the moment so it's it's like the sort of damocles hanging over you and if you get that call then someone's just started cutting the thread and that sword may plunge down which i think is is a very negative way if you've got, got a conflict with uh uh, a procedure, or you feel you might have uh, overstepped the mark somewhere, then a discussion certainly might be required. But I hate the idea that that will lead to uh, possibly a loss of your license because that is not an unthreatening thing and that does not generate uh, a feeling that you will share your problems, mishaps, your mistakes. Uh, it sounds like you're now being put in front of a court. Uh, and that, for me, that, that goes completely against the grain of 
the concept of uh, you know a, a no threat reporting environment when you, yeah, you we work so hard to generate that. I, mean, I don't personally, I don't like it. Um, so no, the answer is in the U- in the UK and Europe uh, that doesn't really exist. I guess that that phone call now serves in a lot of cases to be the first indication that something may have happened and might be something that you need to fill out a report and kind of cover your bases so that you don't um, you don't face uh, negative uh, certification action and and uh, not that you know you're going to automatically have your uh, certificate pulled. It's just like, okay, this is what happened. We see a violation here and just giving you a heads up, we're going to be reporting this. And then you take the time to fill out uh, a NASA report or a, a ASAP or both actually. And then as long as you weren't being negligent or doing something purposely, uh, willfully wrong, uh, you are going to be protected. But I agree with you. It's, 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 I mean, we made steps to make it less, um, Oh, what's the word? Contentious. Contentious. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's not the right word. Less um, threatening. Yeah. Threatening. Yeah, that's a good word. But we've talked about this before. You know, the the safety culture, and uh, in fact, uh, Pip did a really nice um, episode um, a while back regarding that very thing. And that if we're in this, you know, this this uh, business together. And our goal is to make it as safe as we can. Then, you know, having a threatening environment um, is not a good thing. It's counterproductive. And um, anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, uh, Josine in the chat room asked if um, the ASRs in Europe are published. Well, tell the truth, I'm not sure. Um, I certainly get. Uh, a certain number of them highlighted to me uh, uh, via my company, Flight Safety People, uh, and through other publications like Chirp, uh, which is a confidential reporting system we have in the UK. Um, but I'm not—I'm sure there is a way to, to get them all, but uh, I, I personally don't access them. There'll probably be too many for me to ever worry about. I, I, I just tend to trust the people who want to keep me advised, basically my company flight safety um, uh, department, uh, and read those. Uh, that, that's probably an, an enough because there's plenty of those to look through, I promise you. All right. Well, thank you, David, for the feedback. And we'll continue to move on here to item number 10 uh, from either Michelle or Michael. Your choice. Hello, APG crew. Here's an interesting article. Besides the story itself, note the pick of a 747. And the article describes the plane as a 787-9. I assume they mean the 787-9 Dreamliner. Um, actually, they refer to the plane as a 789. Uh, I, I don't, um, in what I'm looking at, I, I didn't see the picture of the 747, but that must be in the full article. But anyway, um... So, yeah, it is. I just pulled up the full article. The okay. first picture is a 747. Gotcha. Okay. So, this story, uh, let's see, sources have described an emergency landing to the Cairns Airport as a comedy of errors after paramedics were unable to reach the body of a man who died on board mid-flight. An Air New Zealand flight, number 80, flying from Hong Kong to Auckland, 
New Zealand, was diverted to Cairns International Airport about 2.30 a.m. on Monday after it was understood a male passenger died on board the Boeing 787 or 789 after suffering a medical emergency. It's not known exactly how the passenger died. According to the Cairns Post, airport sources told the publication that the drama on board the plane continued after it landed, describing the emergency situation as a comedy of errors because no ground crew were available to assist in the removal of the body at the time of the morning, at that time of the morning. It is understood that due to the time of day, accessing the aircraft became problematic while the plane sat on the tarmac. According to, the, to an airport source who spoke to the Cairns Post, the pilot of the aircraft didn't want passengers to use an aerobridge and risk seeing the deceased body. So, instead, the crew sourced a set of stairs for the aircraft, but what arrived were too small. They found a small set of air stairs, which they put up to the aircraft door. They were totally insufficient. The paramedics had to put their kit on top of those stairs and stand on that, and they were still only chest high to the door. They had to climb onto the aircraft to attend to that matter. It's understood that the paramedics had to remove the body from the aircraft via the stairs. An Air New Zealand spokesperson said in a statement to uh, news.com.au that there had been a medical emergency on board the aircraft. Um, so I don't know. What, <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the decision to do this uh, just to kind of prevent. I mean, I'm wondering if the way this person died, maybe it was like very a very physical, uh, Steph, help us out here. Do you think, I mean, what normally a dead person looks like they're just sleeping, but is there something more to this than we don't know? I have no idea. Um, maybe the flight attendant just got so upset because she didn't get a good tip that she took something and just beat him <laughs> up, up on the head and just made a bloody mess. And nobody yeah, I'm, try, to I'm trying to think of, way, of reasons why you would want to, um, you know, and certainly I don't work for the airlines, but my understanding was that this does occasionally happen. People pass away for various reasons and it can happen in flight. Um, not necessarily because of anything related to the flight itself, but sometimes it's just someone's time. And in those cases, usually you continue to your intended destination. There's not a reason to divert somewhere. It's not going to change the outcome for the, the deceased passenger. It's not going to, I can't imagine it would help out in any way in terms of, um, facilitating uh returning that person to family loved ones by you know diverting a whole flight um i i don't know unless there was felt to be some sort of hazard to other um mm -hmm. passengers it kind of reminds I, I me you know, remember that story in portugal mm -hmm. where the guy had yeah the guy who had the um the, some kind of a disease like this flesh eating yeah, yeah the the necrotizing skin yes. disease and and the very foul odor mm -hmm. because of it. That could be a reason. Um, perhaps if there was something that happened that caused um, there to be bodily fluids involved. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, but don't you guys have procedures for what happens if someone dies on board? I mean, I remember Nick, you mentioned it. Well, actually I remember you mentioning it in Farnborough, but uh, I'm sure that Dana, I, Jeff, don't don't you? Aren't there procedures for what to do if, if if you have a passenger that passes away? Yeah, we just open up the door, throw them out. Yeah, I was gonna say, put them in the ejection sheet. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> see a special chute. In fact, we we have some old ships canvas, uh, and we 
uh, wrap them in that and <laughs> zip it up with a with a th- thread. And we always put a, a needle through the nose just to make sure they're really dead. If they uh, <laughs> now, this is all com- this is all confidential. Shoot and fire them off. Not <laughs> quite dead. Yeah. Not, I'm not, not dead, dead yet. yet. <laughs> you will be soon. Exactly. But, uh, Bring out I your have dad. To agree with you, Steph and Jeff. This is uh, this is probably uh, a, a thing I would not have considered doing. Throwing into an airport like Cairns, which is not a major city, it, it's a nice place. They get me wrong; it's a lovely place. But just down the coast is Brisbane. A little further is Sydney. These are sort of international hubs where, if there's a port health issue then they are well-equipped to deal with it. I'm not sure Cairns is in the same um, category. Uh, Darwin, uh, just a, a little bit uh, to the west and a bit further north, uh, is probably equally better placed. So why the captain threw, decided to throw in at Cairns, I don't know. Uh, our general procedure is, um, although the cabin crew uh, are not a equipped to declare someone officially dead, and neither is a doctor on board. Um, uh, We usually um, are well aware of when uh, a passenger has passed away. Uh, And there's, we we don't leave any doubt. It's not as if we won't try every measure we can to um, save someone's life or, you know, continue life where where it's possible. Eventually, we run out of resources. Uh, and if someone has definitely passed away, um, there's not a great urgency to land the airplane. And if the person is still thought to be alive, that's a different matter. If there's a chance they might survive, then yes, of course, you get them to the nearest decent facility. But sometimes that's actually on board. If the person's had a heart attack, um, they they may be best dealt with on board and diverting to somewhere where there are no decent facilities at all and then they'll need to be moved on elsewhere um, is, de- is self-defeating diversion. So you don't land at Shiraz in Iran? And- <laughs> <laughs> Not unless they've got a damn good heart hospital or whatever it is you need. And that's why we have all these great communications and these 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 uh, facilities set up so that we get advice on where's, where good places to divert is. Um, but if the person's definitely passed away, and, and there's no doubting it, then um, what's the point? Uh, our usual procedure is to um, uh, either leave the person where they are if there's, you know, if it's not crammed full, or if we do need to uh, move the deceased, then move them into a into a galley where there's space and uh, it, the the body can be kept discreetly. But we don't have any special morgue on board the aircraft, um, so it's a matter of uh, making do. But um, uh, I, I, I I'm not sure what the logic was. Of, I, sus- of- I suspect that there's more to the story that they're not. Reviewing. Yeah, there's there has to be more to the story, and and I suspect the most likely thing is that perhaps it was an active resuscitation until the time when they actually got close to landing or landed, and were not successful in those efforts. Perhaps that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, but if we're considering a diversion to save someone's life, the facilities at that airport mm-hmm. do they have the ability to get up to the aircraft and 
access right. the door yeah. is one of those things we need <laughs> is to a know. Cri- is a pretty big criteria. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. But but they have- the thing about it is, though, it, it, it basically what I'm reading, maybe re- reading between the lines, is that they did have a jet bridge or aero bridge or whatever you want to call it that would work with this particular airplane, but the pilot made the decision to, before we do that, we're going to have somebody come out with these other stairs and take the body off before we deplane the passengers. Well, uh, no, no. In, in my experience, what we have to do is to make sure if you're going to park against a jetway, that there is a tow bar available mm-hmm. to push the aircraft back because there are so many different types of aircraft and versions that uh, m- most airports don't have every single kind of tow bar uh, that you could imagine. So having parked up against a terminal to uh, facilitate the removal of the person or the body, uh, you may then find yourself stuck there uh, until someone can fly in a suitable tow bar because the airport doesn't possess one. And airports are notorious for saying, oh, yeah, we've got a, in my case, an A340 tow bar. So you go, okay, great. You park, and when it pitches up, it's an A340-300 tow bar, and we're flying an A340-600. And lo and behold, it doesn't fit. Now, just use reverse. Uh, you can do that. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, all this is going through your mind. Uh, whilst, obviously, your intention is to do the very best you can for the person that's having the difficulty, you've got to bear in mind the fact that if you put into a small airfield with 350-odd people, that will, if you don't can't move again because you, there's no tow bar there, you've got hotel accommodation, you've got all the discomfort and the the problems that will will evolve from there. You may, uh, you know, uh, you, you may have saved someone's life, or you may have, um, you know, um, just had the problem of taking off a body. But then, once that's d- done and dusted, you then have to try and work out what to do. For the rest of the passengers and if if you find yourself jammed up against a terminal and you can't move again that's a damn nightmare well uh tristan in our chat room makes a couple of points first of all apologies i was pr- mispronouncing uh can not can <laughs> like the the one in france maybe uh c-a-n-n-e-s no but uh apparently you don't pronounce the r it's been a few years in Australia. We used to call it Cairns. Okay. Cairns? I'll, 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 I'll doff my hat and but, bow to it. I don't know. Well, Cans. it sounded like you were putting less emphasis on the R than I was, but I'm American. We, we are. We're like, we're like pirates. Well, you're always emphasis on the first syllable, aren't you? No. No. If you're, <laughs> n- not really, no. If you're from the South, yes. But yeah, he did Cairns. say it sounds like Cairns. Cairns. Okay. Con, maybe. No, well, anyway. Cairns, yeah. Um. The other thing that he mentioned is that they do see wide bodies quite often, and he, he believes that 787s go in there routinely. So, I mean, that could be a, a point there. Um, it's really hard to tell from this article exactly what the captain was thinking and why he made the decision to do this. I don't know. And the question about this particular story, I think, is was it a medical emergency where they were trying to divert in order to help the passenger or were you talking about a deceased passenger and you're dealing with a, someone who had already passed in which case, why did they divert? Why didn't they just continue that's, on to where they were going? That's what I'm we thinking. That. That's why I'm thinking that there's more to the story here. There's yeah. something really bad that happened here that they didn't want the passengers to see. Um, and they didn't want to deal with anymore. So it's what someone might call a bloody mess. It might be. Yes. 
Maybe his head popped off. Um, Bruce wonders how, how far the flying time between Brizzy and Cairns is. Uh, about an hour, probably. Oh, uh, looks like it'd be longer. I don't know. Uh, oh, to Bris- Br- Brisbane, you mean? Okay. I Bris- thought you meant Brisbane, all the way to yeah. Auckland, the destination. No, no, no. Uh, between Brisbane and Cairns. Oh, okay. Yeah, estimates but ranging from Cairns 30 minutes got, to two hours okay. in the chat room. Cairns has got, sorry, 10,000 feet of runway. So it's big enough to take it. And obviously... Um, it, it can take and does take uh, big aircraft, but um, I, it, something went wrong here. You're quite right, Jeff. There's, there's a little bit. There's a, a few wrinkles to this story we don't know about. Right. Oh well, maybe maybe somebody will be able listening here will be able to tell us if the if you know some more information about this, let us know because inquiring minds want to know. Um, we have some more audio feedback. Uh, this is from Logan and. Here we Is go. he the guy with the sharp fingernails? I think Wolverine. It's a, He's got an airport in Boston. That's oh, okay. That's, that's where I landed. Oh, that's, the, that's the place. Or it could be the guy that uh, was in uh, Logan's Run. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps he's oh, running he's around. He's a marathoner. Yeah. yeah. All right. Here we go. Hello, APG crew. This is Logan Lynch, a.k.a. Lima, Sierra Lima, coming to you from a chilly Kildare, North Dakota. Um, first off, I want to say I love the show. I look forward to a new episode every week. Um, you're all awesome, um, simply put. Um, it definitely brightens up my week to hear aviation news and um, listen to others' feedback. Um, so right now I currently work for a, we'll call it a dull colored package delivery company. I've been working for them for almost four years now. I'm also currently a private pilot with about 100 hours. Um, so right now I'm kind of stuck deciding what I want to do with aviation. I always grew up dreaming of being a pilot, um, whether that be for a passenger airline, flying cargo, flying island hopping in the Bahamas and whatnot. But ultimately, I'm not entirely sure what I want to do. I would love to fly for the current company I work for flying MD-11s or even the Airbus A300s that we that we have in our fleet. But in the long run, I want to always enjoy flying and not just think of flying as a job. So I'm curious, your take, um, do you all still love flying or is it a job or what is your take on it i did just turn 30 on christmas day so i know i still have plenty of time to make an airline career if that's ultimately what i end up deciding but getting to the airlines is 
And the path I should take to get there is puzzling to me. Being a CFI hasn't really ever appealed to me, but I know the many benefits of becoming a CFI. But for some reason, teaching and the thought of sending students on solo flights gives me anxiety. I've recently started exploring the possibilities of a military career. I am currently in talks with a recruiter from the Air Force Reserve and talking about joining out here in North Dakota. So I guess more or less, I'm looking for all of your feedback and advice on how I should decide what I want to do in the future. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this. Again, I enjoy your show every week. And blue skies and tailwinds to you all. This is Logan Lynch. Well, thanks for the feedback, Logan. Um, I think the answer to, I think, your first question regarding, you know, or the the concern that you have for making this something that you love to do, I think that it the most important thing is your attitude, regardless of what airline you're flying, what kind of airplane, where you are in the world doing it. It's all about attitude. And that goes to any job, really. Um, so... Uh, that's what I would have to say about that. Uh, what do you all think, crew? Well, I mean, I think this, uh, you know, and I think Logan is in the, the chat room with us. So hi, Logan. Oh, um, good. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we've certainly talked lots of times about different ways to reach those um, those goals. You know, you don't see yourself being a, a CFI. That's that's fine. There's a lot of different ways to accumulate hours. Um, and I know we can... Um, list off a lot of those. You can be a, a jump pilot. You can be a, a ferry pilot. You can be. You can do pipeline patrol. You could do aerial survey work. You could do. I mean, if you can can imagine it, you can can do it. I see Dana nodding his head, and uh, he wants to jump in here and and add his two cents with recommendations and and advice. I will. I I will just continue. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I know we've talked about it a whole lot, but I, I think probably you have the, a lot to add to this. So I'm going to, yeah. I mean, my, th my, my thoughts are as, you know, you, you got to go forward in, in, if it's something that you've always wanted to do, you can find a way to do it. Uh, you know, Logan, it, I've mentioned it numerous times over and over again is, is that I've been, uh, uh, shut off this buzzing because everybody seems to be talking <laughs> on, <laughs> on, on my phone here as it keeps on buzzing. Anyways, you know, Logan, you got to do what makes you happy. Uh, you know, there are numerous other ways of building time um, without being a CFI. You know, I heard that you have the anxiety of, of actually signing somebody off to go solo. Uh, you know, you're young enough that you can almost do anything you want to. Don't know about the military road. I think you're, pushing the age limit there uh, for some reason that's that's kind of sticking in my mind 30 years old maybe pushing it for flying uh, 
I'm not sure. Certainly, well, talk to recruiter. That was one of the uh, the messages that you just got. Um, Rick yeah. Bell in the chat that, room. Yeah, says, Rick Bell. Says. Air Force uh, was that reserve. Um, mm-hmm. Currently entertaining age waivers as old as thirty seven. No, I guess they're okay, entertaining so, yeah. it, but uh, so. yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean that they're allowing them yet. But yeah. anyways, you know, well, it, it, it it's expensive to get into it. Um, you know, there there are you know the, the good old days when you could fly checks. That's pretty much dried up, uh, but certainly tour banning is still an option. Ag ag work is still you know an option. Um, flying flying finding somebody to fly commercial with that your, your local um, FBO that's always a possibility. Sit right seat on 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 some aircraft. You know there there are numerous ways that you can do it uh, without having to go to the the flying or the flight instructor route. But ultimately, you know, you have to make the decision how fast you want to become an airline pilot. 30 years old, you, as you mentioned, is not old. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity. At 30, you still have, what, four, uh, 35 years uh, available to work in this business, and that's more than enough time. If you started today at an airline, 35 years is a long time. Um, and Jeff, uh, you know, he's just celebrated his 30th. Just picked up my uh, pen today. Just picked up your pen. So there you go, 30 years, and still has another five years. So it's 35 years. So he will have been flying for Acme by the time he, he retires. So, you know, there's there's a lot of room for, uh, for uh, uh, you know, for you to go ahead at the age of 30 to, to go ahead and, and live that dream if that's what you, you want to do and wish to do. Uh, how the best way to go about it, I can't tell you. Um, I, I would say, you know, think he mentioned right now he's private pilot with 100 hours so keep working towards those ratings for right now um that's a good place to start and uh, you know as much as you can keep flying yeah and and that's the thing is is law of recency you know get it Mm -hmm. done get it done as quickly as you possibly can um you know don't don't do what i did i mean i dwelled on it for years i I flew five ten hours here there everywhere from my all through my 20s and i finally said i can't i'm never going to get anywhere if i just dwell and just sit here and do five ten ten hours a year it's not going to happen so you know if, if you're going to commit you got to go all in and just go for it and uh, you know try to build up time and experience as quickly as you possibly can because i'll tell you what i mean the shortage there's no question it is here now uh the other thing you can look at uh i know i haven't mentioned it in a while um, but I've heard uh, rumors, I don't know if they're true or not, but ab initio programs into some of the regionals, mm-hmm. uh, they're looking at uh, people uh, based on experience, and, and that's another thing. I know at Acme, they've, they've now announced something very similar to that. And even the carrier that you're talking about, you know, you may want to pop your head into the chief pilot's office or talk to a couple pilots and see if they have any type of program that they're entertaining now. Uh, internally within the company that would help you to excel in the way that you're looking to move forward and become a pilot for, for even that company. So, you know, and can I just mention uh, that, and I can't remember what episode it was, but uh, first officer Stephen did a fabulous piece of feedback about 15 minutes long on how he built hours and offering suggestions on how to build hours in order to get a job like that. And maybe we can find out what episode that was in and put it in the show notes, but that would be a one, a good piece of feedback for, uh, for Logan to listen to in terms of where to go and, and how to go for his hours with that. 
That's a great idea, Micah, since you're a guest host. Uh, well, that'll be your task, and you tell me what episode it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'll teach you. Uh, I'll offer a lot of other suggestions. And delegation. delegation. <laughs> hey, Stephen, if you're listening, can you remind us which episode that was? <laughs> I do remember it. I just don't remember what episode. But I was not talking to you, Siri. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, she said, well, I'm, I, sure I, not, I'm, I'm not sure I understand. Yeah, well, there's there's does. lots of resources out there too, Logan. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of you have to take some of these things with a grain of salt, but there are good networks out there on social media platforms um, for people who are in the same boat and have or, or have recently done what you're trying to do and can give lots of advice or let you know what's current and and happening and what the what some of the options are, um, reasonable options, and there can be a good place to get ideas for things you may not have thought of before as well. Cause like I said, there's probably more things to do than we can actually think of here in name. So did, did Logan happen to mention, I can't remember in the feedback where, where he's from, where he lives he generally. Don't think he did. Oh uh, yeah. North Dakota, either. I think. No, oh oh yeah, yeah. 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 You're right. You're right. North, North Dakota. Dakota. North Dakota. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. uh, not a whole lot going on. I mean, I was, I was hoping he's living more towards the coast because, you know, one of the, one of the quickest ways to build time now is to, to Manitou. Um, and, uh, but, you know, if yeah. you, that might mean just moving to an area mm-hmm. where they yep. do that kind of thing. I mean, as you said, there's a will. If there's a will, there is a there's way. There's a way. Absolutely. And uh, no matter how you do it, um, you know, there's so many different ways to do it. So many doors to uh, get to where you want to go. And then once you get there, uh, as I said, I've, <laughs> this is a, an amazing career that I've had and I'm still continuing to enjoy, but there are still people that have been doing it as long as I have that are kind of miserable doing it. And I think it's mostly because they just don't have the right attitude. You think they would be miserable doing any job? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. It's <laughs> happy in life. Right. 40 days, 140 days. Oh, see, there's I'm one. There's a good the, example the, for you right I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's and that's honestly one of the things that I've mentioned before. I mean, that's that's what I enjoy. Why I enjoy being captain now is because I get to set the tone. Yep. And I like the positive. I I I, I truly despise flying with all with these people that had nothing but bad things to say all these first officers yeah <laughs> well uh, first officers you know but i get set the tone now yeah. if you know when i was flying with captains you, you I'll, really oh. he may don't want to follow it <laughs> well true but whatever anyway i think uh i think we gave him some good uh tips good advice and logan i hope that you continue with your your goal and uh, let us know what you decide to do because uh, everybody can benefit from that. And finally, Kevin writes in and says, all thanks so much for the work you put into your podcast. It, it It's super enjoyable to listen to informative and encouraging to hear all about your, our podcast. Yeah, I think so. Wait a minute. Okay. Oh, wait, no, no. He entitled it to the uh, yeah the airplane geeks I think. I'll just turn the mic off. Sorry, sorry about that. I think he sent it to the wrong one. Darn it! Well, we're going to pretend it was sent to us. 
So anyway, he says, thanks for so much for all the work we put into the podcast. It's super enjoyable to listen to, informative, and encouraging to hear all your stories and tales. Happy New Year. This again is from Kevin Egan. You're welcome, Kevin. And, you know, honestly, we do it because we're selfish and we enjoy doing this. It's a lot of fun. We get to hang out with uh, good friends every week and talk about flying and other stuff. So, you know, it's just our excuse to be able to do this every week. But we appreciate the fact that you appreciate it. And again, if you all appreciate this and you have um, you appreciate it so much, you want to give us money <laughs> over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and join the coffee fund cadre. And but you don't have to, obviously, it's just a labor of love for us. And we'd do it if we didn't get a cent. So true. Uh, and Liz said episode 335 on Stephen's uh, feedback. OK, is that oh, the feedback um, that you're referring to or? Okay. Yeah, the, 50, the Stephen Ivy. Okay. With his uh Oh, when he finished his 1500 hours. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. Very good. Thank Great. you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Okay. Well, so again, head over to airlinepilotguy.com, the uh, the wonderful website there where you can find about find out about schedules and meetups and merchandise and coffee fund and the crew and the community and so much more. Um and uh we have apps for your iPhone and your Android devices at the respective app stores. Just do a search for Airline Pilot Guy. They're free and no ads. And it's a great way to keep in touch with the show and the community. And we're also on social media, which is probably the very best way to keep in touch with everything. It is. You can head over to twitter.com using the handle at APG Crew. Uh, find out what's happening with the community there interact with us in 280 characters or less um if you're a little more long-winded maybe head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy you can share uh articles and stories there you can chat with community members um you will get interaction with us from time to time um and information about meetups and so much more and that also leads us into slack yes the guy that's in charge of our slack team the apg slack team hillel APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or... Send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack. And another big thanks to our producer, Liz, for helping us prepare for these shows and sorting out feedback and she's awesome keeping us on awesome by the way i should mention i should have mentioned this at the very beginning but i'm going to mention it now i didn't forget liz was the special guest on the ptuk podcast the last episode yeah she represented us well so thank you liz uh for uh for doing that and so check it out ptuk plain talking uk And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Hi, everybody. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. See you guys. Have a great time. Great day.
good, eh?